Torrent Borealis Paradigm Expansion Greetings from the North to the citizens of the world. Welcome to Forum Borealis and another episode in our philosophy series. Our guest tonight is historian Peter Lavender. He is a genuine investigative author who, in the course of more than 25 years of field research, has journeyed to more than 40 countries, gaining access to all sorts of obscure places like temples, prisons, military installations, archives, interviewing historic persons, obtaining primary sources, making new discoveries and writing books about these niche subjects. He has appeared in many documentaries, magazines, interviews, etc. And to learn his biography and see his complete bibliography, just visit our website where you'll also find links to all of his. So far, we've had him on mainly on the Nazi phenomenon, a topic he's been writing extensively about, but he's also a primary authority on other subjects, and one of them is the more shady within spirituality. Uh, And so he's written on weird and uh, obscure traditions or questionable and controversial sects and so on. Now, uh, his whole life he's been interested in the esoteric and uh, he also has a life work in this matter. And that life work is finally out. A book he's been working on since the 60s which probably wasn't possible until now, because with the facility of modern technology, you can get hold of easier access to sources. And though Levanda masters different languages, and so has had access to books otherwise unavailable for an anglophonic audience, we now can attain some essential books on Chinese alchemy that is relevant to this topic that hasn't been translated until more recently. Peter's contribution in this field, if it holds water, will become state-of-the-art. He has discovered ties between alchemy and tantra, and specifically as his book The Tantric Alchemist Goes, concerning the alchemist uh, Philalethes, also known as Thomas Vaughan, one of um, Britain's 18th century hermetic Rosicrucian authors, with an interesting life, including some due mysteries, and the potential fact that he used tantric sources and insights in his great work within alchemy. Although this may sound like a special interest uh, show, 
everybody who has a philosophical bent will get something out of this. If nothing else, you'll learn about a basic Western esoteric tradition. But if you are interested in either alchemy or tantra, uh, there will be stuff for you to pick up on your own road, nonetheless. Don't take my word for it, though. Let's just listen to what Peter himself has to say. Welcome back to Forum Borealis, Peter. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. And we're so glad to have you with us because today is, uh, I say, a deviation from what we've been doing so far. We've been focusing on politics and on history, and especially as regards to the Nazis. But uh, this time you can finally show some of your other qualities as an author. And uh, today we are going to take on something <laughs> very obscure. Mm-hmm. If if not alchemy and tantra in itself is obscure enough, it's even more obscure when it's combined and in the mirror of a certain Thomas Vohan. So my first question to you, Peter, would be how on earth did you get the notion of writing this this book? By the way, what's the title of the book? Yes, the title is The Tantric Alchemist, and the subtitle is Thomas Vaughan and the Indian Tantric Tradition. Yeah, very, very fresh book, I'd say. Just a few months out, or? That's right, just a few months out. Mm. So how did you come across this? Well, uh, this was a labor of love. This, the, the research for this book, or the, the inspiration for it, began uh, in 1968, mm. um, believe it or not. I had... Uh, come into possession of Arthur Edward Waite's compilation of the writings of Thomas Vaughan, which I still have. Mm. Uh, It was put out by a company called University Press, which in those days published a lot of basically high-quality, esoteric, uh, occult books in in fine hardcover editions. And uh, I was 18 years old that year. And uh, had come in. I had been buying books from University Press. Um, Waits book, Waits famous book on the Book of Ceremonial Magic. Probably one of my earliest uh, purchases when I managed to get money together at that age. And then there was the uh, the book of Thomas Vaughn. Now, the writings of Thomas Vaughn are extremely obscure. Uh, they're written like most books on alchemy, uh, which means they're written in a highly technical. Um, and uh, cryptological language, let's mm, say. Mm. So I, at 18 years old, I was not up necessarily to that task. But what happened was the foreword to the book was written by a man called Kenneth Rexroth. Okay. Kenneth Rexroth was c- called the father of the beats. He was a San Francisco poet, philosopher, uh, educator. He was very involved in Asian uh, religions and studies. Hey, did, sorry to inter- interrupt yes. you. Did he hang with uh, William Burroughs and Jack Carouche and all those people? Oh, he was definitely part of that crowd, yes. Okay, get it. So Rexroth has a, a, a lot of publications to his credit. Uh, there's a sort of a society uh, based on his writings. And this forward, to me, it sort of ignited something in me because the forward is extremely suggestive as to what is contained in the writings of Thomas Vaughan. Mm. And Rexroth is saying, basically, 
that Thomas Vaughn really knew the secrets of alchemy and that Waite, Arthur Edward Waite, who was sort of his chronicler and, and the editor of this volume, uh, was being deliberately obscure and obtuse where the material was concerned, trying to hide the truth behind some very flowery language. But that's, that's how Waite writes in general, isn't it? <laughs> in general, always. Yeah. Yeah, always. I mean, Waite is just an impossible <laughs> author. I mean, for all the books that he's edited and published, which is an enormous list of books to his credit, mm. they're all, his writings are obscure. I mean, his writings are flowery to the extent that the purple prose is ridiculous. And um, and, and, and just, he, he just, I don't know, it's a smokescreen for everything that he writes. I'd say he's rather pompous in style. Oh, very pompous. Yeah. Extremely. Among us, I have his Masonic Encyclopedia. Oh, yeah. If you know that very thick thing. Sure, sure. But he was productive. We have to give him that. Definitely was. And he was a member of the Golden Dawn. I mean, he was plugged into all of this, you know. Yeah. But anyway, so the, the, the foreword by Rex Ross says, quite bluntly, that what you're reading can be discovered, the secrets of it can be discovered in, in Tantra, in yoga, in, in the higher forms of yoga, in, in Chinese alchemical practices and Taoism. And then Rex Roth ends up by saying, I'm not going to tell you uh, what the secret is because for a very simple reason, it killed Thomas Vaughn and his wife. Wow. And that's all that I had, <coughs> excuse me, it's all I had to see at the age of 18 was that I was holding in my hands a book that had secrets so powerful that it killed its practitioners, you know. Hmm. Uh, and Thomas Vaughn was unique among alchemists in that he actually worked with a female companion, with, with his wife. They were basically equal partners in the alchemical work, yeah. and he gives her a tremendous amount of credit for that. Uh, he's always referring to his wife, Rebecca, and she died mysteriously. And then he died, I think, seven years after she did. Yeah, I just checked out. Uh, he, she died when he was... Uh I mean, he didn't live very long. He lived yeah. to, he was around 45 or something. Yeah, he died in 60. And so she died like uh, eight years before that? Yeah. Yeah. About, yeah, about seven years, I think, before that. Okay. So mm. it's, um, it, it's very bizarre. How did she die? He actually kept a diary uh, of his alchemical work and everything. And in part of this diary, he's talking about his wife. And his wife is sick. Uh, he, and he's not specifying as to what illness that she has, but he's desperately trying to find a cure in his alchemical laboratory. Yeah. She's actually dying, and he's in the lab as she's lying in bed dying. And he's doing something alchemically, and whatever it was, of course, it didn't work. No. We don't know how she died. We've only recently found out uh, some more information about her background, her family. It's taken a very long time to do that. She's kind of a cipher wow. in all of this. And yet, uh, you know, he was very involved with the Royal Society. He was involved with the, uh, the restoration monarchy of Charles II. He, was, uh, he fought the, uh, the, the, uh, the, 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 the people under the Puritan uh, leader Cromwell. He was, you know, very much uh, a royalist. And um, so he was involved politically. He had a twin brother, Henry Vaughan, a very yeah. famous metaphysical poet. So, you know, he was very involved in, the, in the, 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 the ideas and the controversies and the politics of his time. Um, and in that period, and can I interject here? Because yep. uh, we have an other series. Uh, we call it from Solomon's Temple to Arcadia, where we discuss with people uh, research that is uh, very recent, very new stuff that is found. <clears throat> it's all revolving basically around a Norwegian called Petter Amundsen. He 
It's the first to have uh, really, this is hardcore proven, undisputable codes, different types of codes, but uh, among else the geography in the first folio of Shakespeare and in some. Yep. Uh, so I can't talk about that now. I'll just briefly tell you that it's about uh, the Rosicrucian project. It seems that uh, the old uh, rumor about Francis Bacon being involved and King James and Ben Johnson and... Uh, uh, St- Stanley and a host of other usual suspects, uh, there's mm-hmm. no evidence that they actually did create the Shakespearean, um, well, they did, I, I, at least they put codes in the Shakespearean works and uh, uh, they also seems to have created the Rosicrucian fad as two different parallel projects as a part of the same, I'd say, the same social uh, engineering. And it's all revolving around <clears throat> that King James inherited some sacred artifacts allegedly belonging to the Templars. And according to the codes themselves, uh, the menorah and the ark of all things, <laughs> it's this, uh-huh. is this extreme? But this is, this is Graham Hancock area. It's not fiction. And, uh, the, the trace, of course, leads to da, 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 Oak Island. What else? Right. And here's the point. Uh, in England, after this first generation, uh, people around Bacon and, and some who, who again were the descendants of uh, John Dee, and, and other predecessors. It seems that Thomas Vaughan is one of the few people who was in the know, uh, to some degree at least, after this first generation had uh, done this project. So among else, as you said, he was involved in the politics. Yes, he was on the King James side. He was involved in in the contemporary scene of royal society, which also, you know, came out of, allegedly out of the, what did they call it? Uh, the Invisible College. Right. That was the predecessor. And so, uh, to me, Vohan has been this guy who's been in the periphery, uh, quite interesting, but without, e- even if you check Wikipedia, you'll find twice as much about his brother than himself. And when we had Tobias Churton on, he said that Vohan hadn't written that much, uh, and by the way, Tobias Churton, this uh, scholar, one, one, the first one to bring esoterics as a study field in British University, he he was all for the idea when I mm-hmm. told him about your book. He had no problem, actually, with Vohan having had access to Tantra. He actually wanted to read your book <laughs> because he's been arguing the same thing about the Gnostics. Sure. Uh, the ancient sex Gnostics. So just to wrap up this point, so... Uh, but I've, I've also heard rumors that Vohan is uh, actually the same as the obscure uh, alchemist Eugenius Philalethes. Could you offer any insight on this? No, no, there's confusion between the two, and they're not. He had uh, his own uh, nom de plume, you know, but he's frequently confused with Philalethes, the other Philalethes, so there's okay. really two of them. But the importance of Vaughan in, in the context that you're discussing it, it Vaughan was the person who wrote and who published the first English translation of the Rosicrucian Manifestos. Right, right. And he was accused uh, a number of times of being a Rosicrucian, and he kind of artfully uh, avoided that thing. He, he sort of tried to <laughs> As you should, right? <laughs> yeah, Vaughn wouldn't, wouldn't come out and say yes or no. I mean, yeah. he sort of said no, but in such a way that you might have been inclined to think yes. Mm. So he did avoid it. Mm. Um, he did avoid that, but he he was accused of it. I mean, obviously, he wrote about Rosicrucianism, and he wrote about, uh, you know, at some length, yeah. and he was a kind of an expert on it at the time. So 
you know, there's that relationship that he had, plus other relationships that he had mm. with uh, with Isaac. There's a connection with Newton for a certain period of time. Uh, he knew everybody yeah. uh, who was anybody at that point, and the Rosicrucian connection was definitely very strong part of, of what Vaughn was writing about. And the tantric aspect, I agree with Tobias Churton in this, because I had the opportunities to uh, actually speak with Moisha Idel, a very famous Kabbalistic scholar, sort of the inheritor of the Gershom Sholem ah, uh, mantle. Yeah. And Moshe Adel, a Romanian Kabbalist, really, a person who's written extensively about Kabbalah, okay. he gave a lecture in Florida and then, um, in which he t- kind of claimed that the Zohar, the, the, the seminal work of Jewish Kabbalah, was really a book of, was really a tantric text. According to Timothy Hogan, a uh, um, grandmaster of uh, an alleged surviving lineage of the Templars, he told us on a show that, I think it was a Soha, that that was discovered by the Templars in Solomon's Temple and that they, well, uh, among else they discovered that it wasn't Solomon's Temple, but that they gave it to the the mystical Jews, the Kabbalists in Spain, in okay. Toledo, the Sephardim, yeah. and that that they came out of favor with the Catholics due to this. Uh, do you know anything about this, uh, about the Sohar? I've not heard any evidence like that. I mean, the scholarly texts that deal with the Zohar don't mention a connection like that at all. They kind of think they know who wrote it, but the reasons they give don't really convince me either. So okay. it's possible. The text is so complex, and it's such a classic uh, it's almost in the Shakespeare category where you begin to doubt that Shakespeare wrote the plays and you begin to doubt, you know, whoever is, has been claimed to have been the author of the Zohar really was. But that aside, uh, Moise Udell actually claimed in this lecture that the Zohar was a tantric work. And then I, I, I cornered him later after the lecture mm. and I said, did I hear you correctly? <laughs> you know, mm. were you were you actually linking Kabbalah and Tantra? And he said, yes. Hmm. For as far as he was concerned, the Zohar is a, a work of Tantra. It talks about the Shekinah, which is the, the female aspect of the Godhead, uh, the bride looking for the groom. And he went on to it a little bit, and he convinced me. Hmm. Uh, so I went and took another very deep look at, at Kabbalah, especially the Zohar, based on that. But this was the second uh, chap, then, who you encountered claimed uh, a link between alchemy and Tantra, Right. Well, the first one was Kenneth Rexroth himself yeah. in that forward, and now Moji Adel is saying basically the same thing. Okay, in, the, in that case, we should define uh, both alchemy and tantra, because historically, I, I don't think it's outrageous if you look at uh, the Indian version of alchemy called Ayurveda, right? Sure. And uh, that has a lot of similarities to, to Western alchemy, and many... People, and I guess you're going there, many people also say that alchemy actually derives from Taoism or, or from mystical uh, Eastern traditions. And if that Soha text were found in uh, Jerusalem by the Templars, uh-huh. they may have found it in a Jewish written down version, but it may have been a transcription of something Eastern too, because there were connections between East and the Middle East, India and the Middle East, uh, back in, in ancient times. So I, I don't see a historical or a philosophical problem with your claim uh, in itself, if you understand. 
Well, it, it's it's even deeper than that. We know, for instance, that there was a, a Buddhist presence in Palestine during the time of Jesus, for instance. Yes. So there, there, this the Silk Route was running both directions. So you had you had actually Asian monks living in the Middle East who could have brought that knowledge. But mm. even more to the point, though, is the textual evidence itself. If you just look at the textual evidence within trying to ignore the historical differences or the geographical distances between them, mm-hmm. you're going to see that these texts are using the same language to describe the same process. Mm-hmm. So all of the language that we're used to in Western alchemy with the dragon and the eagle and the iron and the sulfur and you know the alembics and the retorts and all of this, mm-hmm. you find precisely in Indian alchemy and precisely in Taoist alchemy. And the importance of that is that Taoist and Indian alchemy are both alchemies of material substances like uh, raw materials, uh, metals, and, and, and that sort of thing, organic yeah. material. Yeah. But it's also, it's also very heavily based on the body itself. And if you take the illustrations of Chinese Taoist alchemy and, and look at them, they are physical, biological processes that mimic... Uh, what they believe were the physical processes around them in the natural world. So if you take that, if you take the Chinese alchemical texts, which I studied Chinese, I actually went to school to learn to read Chinese back in the early 70s so I could actually read these texts for myself since they were not being translated at the time. So this is how much this forward by Kenneth Rexroth inspired me on this quest, you know, that began so many years ago. Yeah, but imagine if if you back then had the same kind of access that people have today. <laughs> oh, it's different. Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, we wouldn't even be having this conversation. I'd be doing something else probably. <laughs> but this this was critical and I began to see it was it would the the beams fell from my eyes in that biblical uh, phrase. I looked at the Chinese and the Indian texts, the very obscure ones initially. They're a bit better known now. Okay. And I was able to port that information directly onto Thomas Vaughn because Rex Roth in the foreword says, Thomas Vaughn gives the show away. Thomas Vaughn is so transparent as to what he's talking about, it's not funny. He's probably the best uh, introduction to the material you could have. Mm. So I took the Indian and Chinese context, uh, the, the terminology, the ideas, and I began to read Thomas Vaughn almost in the clear, as if the, there was no longer any twilight language around it. There was no longer any obfuscation. It was actually quite clear. Thomas Vaughn is writing about biological processes. There's really no doubt. Hmm. anymore. If you go back and look at Vaughn from that perspective, you see that's exactly what he's talking about. It's it's fascinating. Hmm. And then from Vaughn, you can go and start reading some of the other alchemists and start using the same process and to understand what they're saying. Wow. So you can, you can, you can decode further alchemists through this decoding of Vaughn. Absolutely. Yes. If, if this holds water, Peter, and I haven't read the book, but, but I'm listening. And, but if it does, then a whole host of modern contemporary uh, alchemists, and I'm talking now not about spiritual alchemy, uh, but laboratory alchemists, will have a much easier time ahead of them. Oh, absolutely. Vaughn Vaughn is very clear in, I, I mentioned this in the book, and in one place he says, you know, alchemy is not what you think it is. Alchemy is not about this, it's not about that. Mm. He's very explicit. He says, alchemy is process. It's about a process. And he links that process with creation, and that's basically all you have to do. That's the first secret to me of alchemy, is that this is the secret of creation itself. This is the process. It's not about 
finite things. It's not about atoms and molecules. It's not even really about the Big Bang per se. What it is, the alchemist saw the world as being in a continual state of process, mm. that nothing was stationary, nothing was static, everything was in motion, and everything was in a process of transformation. In our present day, there was a philosopher in the 20th century who said very much the same thing. His name was Arthur Young, and he developed what he called the theory of process. And he laid it out as seven stages, which is exactly what the alchemists believe. There was a seven-stage process. So Arthur Young's concept and Thomas Vaughan's and the, the, the Chinese and the Indians, they pretty much all agree on this, that what you're talking about is process. And, and isn't it interesting that uh, everything in the universe, actually, is based upon vibration – uh, you know, like uh, you have the famous Tesla quote about vibrations, frequency, etc. And of course, everything that vibrates, it can be categorized, classified into seven basic steps mm -hmm. uh, or, or 12, if you like, seven plus five. So and, and you find the same thing in alchemy, uh, the, according to the modern, uh, somewhat modern alchemist, Frater Albertus. Mm -hmm. Right. He said that uh, you can define alchemy as the racing of vibration. In, in, in other words, he kind of distinguishes between transformation, which is just that the form changes, and transmutation, which is uh, something more. It's a lifting of vibration. It's something that sublimizes, uh, something that makes something less crude and more potent and more uh, higher. It's difficult for me to find the right words, but you understand what I mean, right? Sure. Do you agree up, uh, with that and statement? Uh, in a way, yes. It's it's. I think all alchemists that I've read, especially contemporary ones, are grasping, groping towards the same, the same truth, and they're trying to find ways to describe it. And it is difficult. It's not easy. But what I what happened to me is I was in the in very deep in the writing of this book because I finally decided it was time to put all this research down on paper and to to discuss what I was researching, which is culminated in this book. During the process of that, I was intensely uh, involved in it. And in writing it and in, in compiling all the different sources, and I had this kind of a a moment of satori. It was a kind of a, a sort of a blast of a vision of enlightenment, where I saw precisely what Vaughn was saying, and then linking that to what everyone else was saying, his predecessors, let's say in in Asia, yeah, that this was process. This was the entire universe was still in motion from the moment of the Big Bang. Mm. Until now, we know this. We know the universe is expanding. And in fact, it's expanding more quickly now than it did at the time of the Big Bang, which seems to violate physical laws. So when you're experiencing, when you have that actual experience and you find yourself in the middle of it, that everything is in flux, everything is in motion, you realize yeah, that… This is, uh... yeah. Yeah, and this is a cornerstone in Kabbalism, too. They say that the universe isn't created. It is in creation, ever unfolding in creation as we yes. walk alone, and, and <laughs> giving the notion to the New Age concept of being co-creators, of course. <laughs> and and if, you can, if you can actually see that, not just on an intellectual basis, but if you could actually see it, sense it, mm. uh, that's really, that leads you into the, the process of alchemy. This is the alchemical process. And you kind of find your way towards 
becoming a, a co-creator, becoming a participant in the process, a, a conscious participant. We are all participants. We have no choice. Mm. We're, we're, we're products of the big bank, mm. um, everything around us. I mean, as I b was working on the book, I realized that the computer I was working on, the references, the desk that the computer was on, this was all part of that process. This was all in a state of flux, in a state of motion. Um, so I was simply being conscious of it and participating in this process. And that was very enlightening, That no pun intended, but it was this kind of moment of, of realization, of actually feeling it, not just intellectually understanding it, but actually feeling it and sensing it and realizing that all of these sexual allegories, for instance, Thomas Vaughn is replete with them. And People sort of try to see what is he really talking about. Well, that is what he's really talking about. And that is so common in Indian philosophy, too, to express the yes. philosophy and the law through the symbolism of the uh, sexuality. Uh, obviously, we, we know it from the Indian gods and we know it from the tantric traditions. But, but I think uh, at some point we need to define tantra, too, uh, not just alchemy. Sure. Um I've written, I think, uh, well, I've written another book on Tantra called Tantric Temples, mm. uh, which was a, a major sort of investigation of the temples in Indonesia that were built by the Tantrikas uh, back when the time when India was such an influence in Indonesia. And I, I had to do a lot of studying on a Tantra, of course, because that's been a favorite subject of mine for many years as well. And Tantra is almost impossible to define. Even the scholars just throw up their hands yeah. and say, you can't really say what it is. It's like, uh, you know, I know it when I see it. Uh, <laughs> even many of the famous tantric texts don't even have the word tantra in the title. So you have to kind of feel your way towards it. But what it is basically, it's a series of conversations, it's a dialogue between Shiva and Shakti, between the male and female principles of the universe, you might say, deified as gods and goddesses. Mm. So you have a god and a goddess, they're having a conversation, and the goddess generally is asking the god, uh, what about this and what about that, how does this work, and then he explains it. And it's all done in sexual allegory. Mm. And there's a reason for that, because this, our, as human beings, are the closest we come to participating in that alchemical process is sexuality. We're mm. products of that process. And we then contribute to it ourselves uh, as as we grow older. So we're part of sexuality is the is the easiest way of trying to explain the process. You have different types of materials. They mix together. They create a third, and that third being is a, a combination of the elements of both and on and on and on. And becoming involved in that sexuality became the easiest way to depict a process that you could depict just as easily using mathematics or using uh, physics or using you know chemical substances as they do in the alchemical laboratories. Yeah. If you are successful in identifying the process in one discipline, then you will be successful in the others. In other words... When Jung talks about alchemy from his perspective, and when Frater Albertus talks about it from his perspective, they're both right, because they're both describing a process, they're just using different language, a different set of symbols to describe it. Right, so we can say that uh, if you are, uh, and it's actually I think this goes for all the world's ancient uh, spiritual traditions or natural philosophies, if you like, because they had one thing in common, even if they were to Toltecs among the Amerindians or the Druze in the Middle East or wherever these old traditions are, 
They speak so. They have, of course, different cultural expressions, religious references, symbolism. But right, yeah. the essence of it seems to be the same. Uh, you, you take a look at the Pythagoras, Siddhartha Gautama, known as the Buddha, and Lao Tzu of Taoism. They all came to the earth among the same time. One in the west, one in the middle, one in the east, uh-huh. and they brought traditions very similar. And my take on it is that if you study nature as your reference as your answer book, if you like, then you're bound to come to uh, similar principles so that if you decode something and you're onto it, then you would expect that it would have the similar principles. Sure. I'll give you a short example. If you're into music and if you're into electronics, you are studying different fields of expression of the same natural laws, but and a technical musician and an electronics person who sits down and discusses will discover, wow, we are discussing the same principles. Yes. And that's how I look at it. You have a common reference that is deeper, that is binding everything together. It's a blueprint of the cosmos, if you like. Right. And the alchemists are always telling you to read the book of nature. That's what they're constantly reminding you to do. Yeah. Uh, it's all around you. And the philosopher's stone is there. It's, it's everywhere. It can be found mm-hmm. anywhere. And it's, it's, uh, probably the most despised element, you know, as the alchemists are, are fond of saying all the time. So mm-hmm. you have to look at nature. You have to observe nature because nature is the evidence of the process itself. Na- nature mm-hmm. is the evidence. Nature is the teacher. And that's what Vaughn understood. Mm-hmm. Just also to explain this to people, uh, many alchemists say that what they are doing is not uh, like some mad scientist like uh, Frankenstein. We are not meddling with nature. No. <laughs> we, are, we are imitating nature. We are accelerating what is already a natural process, but we are studying how it takes place in nature, how God does it. And then we repeat or, or, or we uh, simulate these principles to rapidly get more potent or faster results. Could one say that? Well, sure. I think uh, everyone from Mercia Eliada all the way up to contemporary alchemists and going back thousands of years talk about the fact that they believe, the the belief of the alchemists is that all metals tend to become gold. Mm. So the idea of the alchemist is to accelerate, as you say, that process, to take lead and accelerate the process of its becoming gold. Now, Jung understood that to mean a reference to human spirituality, that we're all tending towards higher states of spiritual evolution. Mm. He's not wrong, but that's not the whole story. If we separate the spiritual from the material, then we're going to miss the point. Yeah. It's all, it's all has to come together. The spiritual, the material, we, don't, we put them in boxes, and we have since the scientific revolution. But that's really not a good way to go about it. The whole person is a combination of the spiritual and the material. Creation is a combination of the spiritual and the material. So even as creation keeps going through this process, this alchemical process, so is our consciousness. So is the consciousness of everything in existence undergoing the same process. They go hand in hand. One cannot happen without the other, which is why if an alchemist was able to create gold, that was a symbol of a process that had also taken place within, within his own consciousness. Mm. Yeah, and so they had very strict uh, criteria. Anyone couldn't just meddle with this. Uh, there was lots of quacks. But the irony here is that in Wuhan's time, when they founded the Royal Society, 
It was dominated in the beginning by what we could maybe call philosopher uh, scientists, uh, uh, but then the materialists took over and uh, eventually, because there were many people who were into alchemy, astrology and all these forbidden ancient uh, arts, uh, among the scientists, they were basically esotericians. <laughs> the first, uh, well, wrote- Elias Ashmole being a very famous uh, proponent of that. Ashmole himself was a one of the founders of the Royal Society, and he was a Freemason mm. at a time when you know Freemasonry had there, there was no united grand lodge yet. Freemasonry was very disparate. It was scattered. It was probably you but know, it was dynamic and revolutionary too back then. Of course, not establishment like now. No, exactly. And possibly connected to Templar orders that had survived mm. in Scotland and, and so on. So Ashmole was, was an esotericist. Uh, Isaac Newton, mm. famously, mm. was involved in alchemy, was involved in you know biblical interpretations and computations of Solomon's Temple and all the rest of it. So you had scientists who were Renaissance men, basically. And just a little observation that's not very relevant to this show today, but is relevant to our other shows we've had with you. Germany was one of the last stands of the philosopher alchemists. And that's so interesting because there was such a short period there until the modern times that I I kind of see, and not just me, uh, like uh, um, Joseph Farrell's friend, uh, Walter Bosley has pointed to he thinks that this is the reason that Nazi Germany got so much exotic technology because they didn't have these materials lid on the philosophy of the research. It was all bets were off, you know, uh-huh. do whatever it takes to beat right. the enemy. So, so in Germany, like you've explained us earlier, the Nazis was into occultism and they even um, made a point out of thinking out of the box and they hijacked, of course, all of esoterics, and they killed off, uh, tried to, what they didn't have use for, and they put into use what they could use. I think, I think that actually the alchemists, uh, alchemical traditions in Germany is part of the clue of how the, the Nazis could get uh, hands up compared to the West, who was the, the, the allies back then, who was hopelessly already in a reductionist material mechanism philosophy. What do you think about that? Well, yeah, I mean, you can make a very good argument for that. The, the very big difference between Einstein's uh, physics on the one side and Heisenberg's on the other, right? Mm. So you have Werner Heisenberg who stayed behind and devoted himself more to quantum uh, physics, and you had Einstein with, with relativity. Were two different approaches to building the atomic bomb, mm. um, and it appeared that the Einstein's version won out because of whatever reason, but Heisenberg, uh, Werner Heisenberg was definitely uh, conscious of that as well, and it was a more mystical approach. If you look at uh, the quantum physics, right now quantum physics is sort of a touchstone mm. for a new age view of how the world works, as opposed to Einstein's theories of relativity, which are extremely mystical themselves if you try to explain them <laughs> in, in normal terms but quantum mechanics and quantum physics is you know is the ghost in the machine you <laughs> yeah. know so it's um so yeah i can understand where that might be definitely so the nazis were you know scientifically oriented obviously it was the they were the the, the cradle of science in in the 20th century uh in the 19th century in the 20th century but at the same time the whole 
thrust of Nazism was to go back to our roots, to go back to our pagan roots, to get rid of the extraneous stuff that came with Christianity, get rid of that, go back to being in touch with nature, leave the cities, mm. the back to the nature moment, movement of Ander Vogel, for instance, and all of this, you know, having the, the kids go out there and abandon the cities and wander for a year in the forest. The idea, again, was to observe nature, to become part of nature. Yeah. Which would have meant nothing to American scientists. It would have looked absurd. You know, yeah. So. <laughs> but the final point about this sidestep here, um, we just had on uh, a guy called Carter Heydrich. Uh, do you know his book, uh, Critical Mass? I don't think so. Well, he's the first to have proven, actually, that uh, the German nuclear bomb project was um, ahead of the Manhattan Project and that a certain U-boat <clears throat> went to from Norway to America. It was supposed to go to Japan to complete their atomic program, but uh, instead uh, some kind of backroom deal was made between Borman and Dulles. I see. And so they got a lot of uranium. They got a certain scientist. Uh, and, and this wasn't even the Heisenberg crowd. Uh, the guys who actually had a breakthrough in Germany were, I forgot uh, the name now, but it's all in the show and it's all in his book. But I really recommend you check it out because oh, okay. it's, it's going to rewrite uh, modern history. Of course, this won't be accepted immediately, but... He's had um, lectures about it at uh, Los Alamos and um, Oak Ridge, and uh, yeah, it's pretty pretty mainstream uh, coming out more and more in the mainstream. So Farrell has made a big point out of this in in his book. So something for you to to keep an eye on since you're interested in also also this area. Sure. And, and for our, our listeners uh, who are fan of uh, Lavanda, you should also check out that show we have with Heydrich, uh, those of you who are <clears throat> interested in Nazi history. But back to this track. Um, you mentioned that uh, Rebecca, his wife, Thomas Vaughan's wife, had a mystical death. And I've also read yes. that the same can be said about Thomas Vaughan himself. And of course, those who know a little about alchemical history knows that this wasn't uncommon among those who actually did the work, who had a laboratory. It was yeah. a famous way to go out, actually, right. yeah. <laughs> to blow yourself up. And But what, what do you make of those uh, deaths? In the case of Vaughan, it's, it's a little mysterious. He actually, according to the stories... Uh, that have come down to us because we really don't know exactly. He evidently blew himself up with uh, mercury. Hmm. He was uh, in a laboratory with mercury and blew himself up, which is precisely the way that uh, Jack Parsons died, the famous follower of Aleister Crowley, who was also a rocket scientist. And, and probably a hobby alchemist, don't you think? In, in a sense, yeah. I mean, at, at, a, at a certain point, it becomes difficult to tell where alchemy ends and magic perhaps begins, or even where science begins at times. So yeah. he was a, a rocket scientist. He was uh, very famous, a crater on the moon named after him and all of that. And, uh, uh, and of course, the uh, infamous story about um, the Scientology guy, Hubbard. Sure. <laughs> but, but we don't have to go there now. We'll take that with you yeah. another time. Sure. But continue. Yeah. But these, these two gentlemen, and they both had uh, women who were involved with them in the great work and all of this. Uh, and it was, you know, Parsons who blew up in the 1950s, and it was uh, Thomas Vaughn who blew up in, in 1666. So it's it's very strange we don't know why he seemed to have become very depressed of course after the death of his wife he actually stopped publishing after the death of his wife the, he, there was no more coming from him at all but he did become very involved as 
the court alchemist, essentially, for uh, Charles II, or actually after Charles James, for the court of Saint, of King James. Mm. So he was now very much involved in all of that, I, like I say, with the royal society, too, in a peripheral way. He, he had friends among many noblemen, and they had hired him basically as an alchemist. Mm. And he was doing not only alchemy in, this, in, in the sense of lead into gold alchemy, but he was doing medicinal alchemy as well. He was very involved spagyrics. in... <clears throat> yeah, spagyrics. Yeah, He was very involved in, in creating medicines. And his diaries are full of references to medicines. And it, that might have been inspired by the death of his wife. Oh, so, so we, have, we have access to his uh, notebooks? There are some notebooks. I mean, one uh, notebook has been published. Uh, parts of it were published in the Wake book that I mentioned that came out in 68. Mm. But there's a more uh, thorough um, and annotated a copy that came out just a couple of years ago, uh, when they did a com when a, a gentleman did a complete rewrite of uh, a re you know interpretation and a re uh, editing mm. of Thomas Vaughan's work, very valuable, and uh, I went through that with a fine tooth comb, comparing the weight version with the the more modern version. And yes, we do have notebooks and we have very cryptic references to certain types of materials. He even created something called Aqua Rebecca, right, <laughs> named after his wife. Wow. We don't know exactly what that was all about, but that was something that he used to great extent. He said that actually his wife had discovered it and had enabled him to to dis rediscover it. Huh. He had found it at the time when his wife was already sick and dying, and then after she died, he lost the formula. <laughs> And then through prayer and meditation, years later, it came back. And so he then recorded it. And then after that, well, he just hadn't published anything at all. The notebooks were never published during his lifetime. They became part of an estate that eventually saw the light of day uh, centuries later. Right. So it was only recently in the 20th century that these notebooks came to light. And it's only in the last couple of years that a an annotated professional version is available. And we see him working. He's talking about dreams that he had. Mm. You know, and he's and the dreams, the dream work is part of the alchemical work for Thomas Vaughn. They they're not separate. So, like a Jungian, good Jungian, you know, depth analysis, <laughs> he's doing his Jungian dream work on the one hand. Mm. And remember, this is in the 17th century, yeah. so he's writing down his dreams there, and at the same time, he's in the laboratory using the dreams to inspire him to find other chemical uh, combinations and other medicines. It's a fascinating work. It's spare. It's not with a lot of detail, but as you go through it, you see the workings of the mind. And he was nobody's fool. He, he knew what he was doing. Yeah. Uh, let me give a shout out for that method because it's, uh, it's actually a cliche. That's how common it, it is. How many stories don't we know about scientists or inventors or great thinkers who got the seed of their breakthrough precisely in dreams? But this chap, he was early out yeah. Uh, using that method. But you, you rather abruptly, I would say, uh, dismissed the notion that he is behind the uh, anonymous alchemical works of Aegeneus Philalethes. Now, I'd like you to, uh, if, if this is something you can explain more detailly to us, I, I like that. I have two questions regarding this. One, have you read Philalethes so that you can compare the style and the contents and, and obviously see if, if this could be the same person? And two, do you know if Philalethes, because you said he didn't publish anything after Rebecca's death, do you know if Philalethes' publications came after that or before? Okay, yeah. See, there's, there's two Philalethes. Uh, there was a Eugenius 
Philalethes, Eugenius, that's Thomas Vaughan. Oh, that is Thomas Vaughan. Yeah. Oh, right. But there's an Irenaeus Philalethes, right, who is not Thomas right. Vaughan. So it's Eugenius versus Irenaeus. So there's two different Philalethes, okay. right? Yeah. So Eugenius is is Thomas Vaughan. His works were written under that pseudonym. In, in some cases, sometimes he wrote under his own name. But he wrote as Eugenius Philalethes. Mm. But there was an Irenaeus Philalethes, who was a, a famous alchemist, uh, with books to his credit, and uh, people often confuse the two. Yeah, even I did now. I've heard about both, uh, but I didn't recall that until you told me now. So, yeah. Yeah. So that's good that you actually uh, then approve that he, he was uh, the Eugenius guy, not the other one. Right. Mm. Irenaeus versus Eugenius. He's Eugenius, and Irenaeus was the other one. Well, a lot of people, and people do confuse them because the Philalethes and you know the same initials. All right. So it was very easy. Yeah. Very easy to confuse it, um, and he's not definitely only Eugenius, not Irenaeus. So those Irenaeus, I think, actually published after he did, if I'm not mistaken. So, yeah, but yeah, Ir- um, Eugenius is is Thomas Vaughan. But but did you check out uh, his brother's work? Uh, he had this twin brother who, like you said, uh, was it Henry? By the way, Henry. 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 Yeah. Yep. Very famous, and he. Had the same upbringing. He too studied Hermetic. He, he, he's known for, especially his poems. He wrote a lot of sacred poems. And I'm convinced, Peter, that if these two twin brothers uh, remained uh, more or less on good terms, uh, stuff would have gone back and forth between them. And in that case, if his brother never published uh, alchemical works per se, I'm pretty sure that if someone like you who have decoded and understand Thomas, if you took a look at the brothers' uh, works, especially the poems, because what else, what better vehicle to cloak symbolism and references than sacred poetry? That's the whole point of sacred poetry. Sure. Uh, like the troubadours and the Sufis, they, they pretend to talk about uh, their girlfriend and is really about God or the soul or whatever. So mm-hmm. have you have you checked to see if there's some clues there that can even cast further light upon Thomas and his work? It's possible. Henry's poetry is, at times, it seems obvious what he's writing about. It seems that he's, you know, he is. Uh, it's, it's kind of spiritual poetry, but it doesn't. It doesn't get down in the in the dirt the way Thomas okay. does. Thomas is very hands-on where all this is concerned, and he's. It's it's coded language, kind of, but um, you know, it doesn't take much to figure out what Thomas is writing about. Henry Vaughn was a man of letters. They both did study Hermeticism when they were younger, and they were both royalists. They were both uh, fought on the side of, of Charles and fought for the Restoration. So these were people who um, had very, you know, and, and the, the Charles, uh, the Stuart line was very mystical-oriented yeah, yeah. anyway. So there was this idea of mysticism, a, a kind of spiritual king, and both Henry and Thomas were very deeply involved with that, and they had both received that kind of training. Thomas Vaughan had trained to become a clergyman, actually. Um, so he actually went to a kind of a theological training period, which Henry did not. So there was a, a kind of a difference between the two as to where their interests were, would lie. Henry went on to become the famous Cambridge metaphysical poet, whereas Vaughan went straight into the laboratory. Mm-hmm. So there was communication between the two. Um, I believe their wives knew each other as well, if I'm not mistaken. Wow. There was some kind of familial, convivial relationship. I don't think they ever really broke off relationships with each other. And I'm certain that Vaughan did talk about his work to Henry. It's just that we don't have 
any correspondence left that gives us this information. But we do have some correspondence uh, between Thomas Vaughn and several members of the royal household and several nobles, uh, little bits of bits and pieces of correspondence in which Thomas Vaughn is actually uh, creating medicines for people in the royal household. And there's this kind of, a, there's this idea that Vaughn is, is creating not just regular medicines, but these are somehow spiritually imbued. They have some sort of additional power associated with them, you know, and he's healing this or he's trying to cure this problem or that problem. So Vaughn became very busy with, uh, with alchemy and with especially spagyrics at the time. And I don't believe there was any you know, hint that Henry might have been a benefactor of this, or was in any way working with with Henry and uh, with the Thomas in any way. He did live, you know, longer than yeah than Thomas Vaughn. Henry, I think, arranged the the funeral for Thomas, uh, and I believe he wrote an elegy for Thomas Vaughn. But he didn't. Uh, there's no. There was no really close identification of the two. Hmm. Okay, but uh, <clears throat> when you went into Thomas and you. You say it's easy. I guess it's easy with the key, of course. But you you did spend your right. time on this. <laughs> yeah. So from 1968 to it came out this year, I guess. It came out. Let me just check the publication. I think it came out last year, if I'm not mistaken, 2015. Yeah. So you've been working on so this. the end of 2015. Yeah. But you've been working on this. You told us uh, in another show where you uh, plugged the book. You told us that you've been working on it on and off for all these years since. Sure. Yeah. It's your life work in a way. Yeah. The longest, at least. So, but uh, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if you also set up a laboratory and tried to implement some of these principles. It's a very personal question, but uh, <laughs> can you address that? Have you tried following his work? Well, you practically. You you actually yes, practically. I will say practically yes. I will yeah. say, but as far as a laboratory is concerned, you don't need one. Ah. Um, so the laboratory. You can actually get by with um, with some very simple materials. Uh, for instance, we talk about spagyrics. Uh, spagyrics is more interesting to me for a number of reasons. So the idea of creating um, medicines, in a sense, mm. you know, has interested me more than you know, lead into gold, um, because you do need a lot of equipment for that. Uh, you do need uh, a lot of painstaking attention. You have to keep a fire burning at a, at a particular temperature for long periods of time. All of these things are necessary yeah. and far beyond my capacity at this point because I'm more interested in the reading and the writing of it than I am in the, in the laboratory work. But as far as uh, other practical applications of it, certainly. I mean, it's almost impossible now at this point not to be conscious of these processes, right? And almost anything that you do, you you become conscious of it. You become sensitive to the the passage of of time and the passage of states from one state to another. So, you you're conscious of it. So it does affect you, and you do tend. You have this tendency to say, "Let me see if this works this way. Let me see if I can make something like this happen." And so I become very involved in mixing things. Let's put it mm. this way, <laughs> and, and in mixing things and creating substances like that, just to see how this works. And uh, it's it's it, it can be very uh, addictive. Yeah, well, it's it's a whole tradition out there which is well alive. Uh, yeah. So many people are into practical alchemy, be that working with um, vegetable kingdom, like with with medicines, plants, or with metal and uh, minerals. Not necessarily only to uh, make gold, but that's. 
<laughs> good bonus effect, I'd say. Yeah. And although you, you have sexual alchemy, you have uh, uh, spiritual alchemy, but in the practical, there, there is uh, an unbroken chain, I'd say, from the medieval ages and up till today. And among modern alchemists that are, are well known, not just to be dabblers, but to, and I'm saying this for the benefit of the audience, you know this, of course, but who actually achieved stuff was people like uh, François Cholivet Castellot in France. Uh, you have the mystical right. guy Fulcanelli. That's a whole show only <laughs> right there. Sure. You have uh, Alexander von Bernus, Jean Dubius. Uh, Alexander is uh, German, Jean is the French. Um, mm-hmm. You have Orville Graves and, of course, uh, Frater Albertus. And then you have Manfred Junius. Th- those are the most well-known, I think, of modern alchemists who all offered practical laboratory books and not all always that cloaked actually they many of them used modern scientific language so people who dismiss alchemy as exactly some kind of because it's this myth that is some kind of old ancient uh, romance without any practical value no i'd say atomic science developed directly out of alchemy and uh, that uh, uh, we wouldn't have modern physics, chemistry, all this stuff if it wasn't for alchemy. And in medicine too, you have Paracelsus, of course, the big. Uh, sure. So, so this is something that people can go into. But you uh, say that to decode uh, Vohan's formulas and receipts, you don't actually need a, a whole laboratory. You can get off with very elementary, rudimentary spagherical uh, equipment. Sure, but you have to. the The point of of all of the the laboratory work, I mean, the real point of it, is to see is to see externally what's happening internally. Right. So it's macrocosm, macrocosm, as above, so below. The famous Hermetic yeah. axiom. So when you, when you're actually operating in the laboratory, you're actually seeing the process at work. You're seeing not only what goes on in nature around you, but you also see what's taking place within. Mm. So within yourself, within your body organically, but also within your psyche, all of these things are linked. As we know from Tantra, we we should probably discuss it just a little bit more. And Tantra is a way of organizing the body in such a way that it reflects a spiritual reality and vice versa. So you're trying to balance, and maybe balance is not the right word, but you're trying to form this connection between what's taking place spiritually, what's taking place physically. So you have pranayama Mm. as an example. Mm. You're trying to control parts of your nervous system that are autonomic, that happen on their own. So we have the autonomic nervous system. It controls breath rate. It controls your heartbeat. It controls peristalsis. It controls a lot of unconscious functions of the body. Meditation, yoga, and leading up to Tantra, these are systems going into the autonomic nervous system and making adjustments, Mm. which sounds very dangerous, and it is. Um, If you don't know what you're doing, you can encounter difficulty physically. And again, going back to Kenneth Rexroth, he points that out in his foreword. These are unguided, autonomic nervous system experiments. That's basically what Thomas Vaughn and Rebecca were up to from from Rexroth's point of view. And I, I explain that in the book. What are those experiments? Are people doing it today? Where is it done? Has, have there, has there been fallout? Have there been fatalities? Yeah. There have, right? So this, this is a, uh, it's a dangerous process, but if you t- undertake it the correct way, step by step, uh, not in the way of the puffers of the alchemists who try to make gold in a week, but if you try to do this in a, you know, in a normal process, <laughs> it can be very salutary and, 
as the body responds to the, the ritual of the meditation and of the, the alchemical process, the body responds, the psyche responds, and nature around you also responds. You begin to see things differently, sense things differently, and you begin to understand the process. You begin to feel the process working. Yeah. So this was, this was Tantra, and sexuality became part of it. The, the sexuality aspect of it is taking that individual process, the interior process of meditation, pranayama, and all the different yoga asanas, taking that and then externalizing it one more step where it involves another person. So two people then who have undergone this are now combining their, their forces, they're combining their understanding and their knowledge to create this third process. Yeah, yeah, the alchemical wedding uh, springs to mind. I, I have yes. to. There's so much now. Uh, you have to take it a little slow here. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, because there's so much to comment upon or to ask you about. Yeah. The, first of all, the reason I mention all these practical alchemists is that uh, something tells me that some of that crowd, which is, uh, like I said, alive and kicking today, will maybe stumble over this show. So I, I want to ask you first of all, you, would you say then that to those who already are into this? Could they get something practical out of uh, getting your book and, and checking out the formula that you're decoding there? Well, I think it would be valuable if only because I examined the Indian and Chinese systems, which were both chemical processes and biological processes. Yeah. They're, they're using chemical terms to refer to biological processes, and they're using biological terms to refer to chemical processes. So I, th I think the advantage is in seeing how the entire picture comes together. Mm. And, and they may cer certainly find valuable information just in that. If they haven't studied Chinese or Indian alchemy, this may be a very good introduction oh. to that field. And I, I give you my sources. The footnotes are there. Everything is, is referenced uh, completely. So anybody who wants to take that further can. And there's some very good books out on Indian alchemy uh, that are just, you know, David Gordon White has written The Alchemical Body, which is absolutely essential for understanding both alchemy and tantra. So, and if you take that book and you take a few others, uh, for instance, translations by uh, by Mr. Cheek, who's done you know some translations of Chinese alchemical uh, texts, you take all of this and then port it over to the Western alchemists, uh, you're going to see tremendous. Th th there's going to be little explosions taking place in your brain <laughs> as, as you're reading this, and you're suddenly you're, you're seeing the relevance of mm. it. It will be it will it's enlightening just by itself. It's worth the no. price of admission. Mm. Yeah, so so explosion in the brain and then the laboratory. But yeah. but okay, even if you haven't tried to, or if you have tried to replicate his work, uh, they may be equipped to do that then if they already know Certainly. practical alchemy and they have your book. Certainly, absolutely. Okay, cool. So when you say, and I want to back you up, you say as within, uh, so without, as above, so below, you, you say that <clears throat> it's sexual aspects, it's biological aspects, and you don't even need Tantra for that, even in classical alchemy. That's actually a given because there's so many who thinks that, well, we, we have the symbolism I just referred to, the, the alchemical wedding, but you also have speculation that the prima materia, which is the code, I guess, the word for what stuff you should begin with that has to be sublimed in order to make the Philosopher's Stone, that some people claim prima materia should be a man's sperm, Others say that prima materia is the urine. Uh -huh, sure. <laughs> so here we have a very close connection between biological and sexual functions 
and the actual work that this uh, as expressed in in symboly what, what do you think about those uh, uh, avenues in alchemy i know many people puff of it and and don't go agree with it but then again there's those who swear by it so what do you think about that I think that when you read alchemical texts in general, you're going to find that there's reference to two methods, the dry and the wet. And it could be linked to the the quick and the slow also. In Buddhism, for instance, in in, uh, Buddhist practice, there's the the fast path and there's the slow path. But also In Pythagoreanism, too, you have the Pythagorean Ypsilon that uh, illustrates the dry and the... Uh, and the wet humid yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. well there's there's a dry and there's a wet there's two different mm. methods uh, Vaughn talks about it as well and Vaughn makes constant references to sperm mm. he's making constant references to that and to the menstruum and to the queen and the lady and to this I mean wow. he sexualizes the entire process very deeply mm. but this is the point yes yes it can be sperm and it can be urine and it can be uh, the, the menstrual flow as well. It could be all of these things because this is all part of creation. It's all part of the process. Mm. So it depends on how you focus your attentions and how you take you take it to its logical conclusion. You have you can't mix and match so easily. You know, you have to have a place to stand and to start from. Yeah. So is it the sperm and the urine? Vaughn explicitly says, no, everybody is wrong when they say these things. They don't know what they're talking about. It's all oh, about- oh, so he addresses oh, he specifically, specifically that, specifically. that as prima materia. He, he addresses it. He says, it's not about that. It's about the process. Focus on the process. Uh, and then for the rest of his work, he's talking about sperm and urine. And everything else. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> yeah. this is what you have. When you, when you approach Vaughn, it's written in what I call twi- what others call as well twilight language, or what sometimes is called the green language. Falconelli referred to it, I think, as the green language. Yeah. This is the the coded system that the initiates use to talk to each other, and it's a it's a meta language. It's a language that operates on different levels simultaneously. So at one level of understanding, you can read it as it's referring to, for instance, a sperm and, and ovum, for instance. You can read it on that level, and you'll be correct, but you won't have the whole story. And then after you've done that for a while, you realize, oh, sperm means something else, and ovum means something else. So then you're starting to read the text, the same text, but you're reading it on a different level. You're understanding the process in a different way. And then a little bit later, you're going to look at it again and say, no, it's not the sperm or the ovum. It's, it's the Zen mm. paradox where, you know, before I studied Zen, mountains were mountains, rivers were rivers. <laughs> As I'm studying Zen, mountains are no longer mountains, rivers are no longer rivers. But when I attained enlightenment, mountains it, were mountains, to, yeah. rivers were rivers. <laughs> and that's the alchemical process, too. Mm. I mean, so you have to read the texts on those multi-levels. Mm. It's a meta-language for describing something which they did not have any other language to describe. And wouldn't you say that's part of the reason that you, they were so strict to avoid puffers and broilers, that they felt that, well, an alchemist <clears throat> is a part of the work. You're not just doing a work, but it's a it's like you said, the alchemists become part of the alchemy and that therefore there had to be worthy people. It had to be people who refined themselves, who matured themselves as a part of the bigger process. Your own process is a part of it. You cannot distinguish between the doer and the doing. 
No, you can't. It is the same. I mean, you are part of the laboratory equipment. And if you're not in a, in a, in a clean state, if you're not in a purified state, which is not a moral judgment, you know, this, mm. is, this is a chemical judgment, let's say. Um, if, if you're not in that state, um, then you, you have a, a, an instrument or an alembic or a retort, which is not suitable for the process. And the alchemists were afraid of people who went at it without the requisite spiritual preparations. Um, because number one, it just wouldn't work. But number two, the damage that could be done to a person is enormous. I mean, just as you can make an explosion in the laboratory by mixing things that shouldn't be mixed together, so the same thing can happen on a, on a psychological level. Mm-hmm. The one can be the, the re- reflex of the other or the reflection of the other. So it's dangerous to everyone. It's dangerous to people around you as well. So, yes, you have to stay away from the puffers and the people who are just dabblers or, or the yeah. counterfeiters. You know, there are those who are counterfeit gold, you know, yeah. and they're, thereby tarnish the, the, the image of the alchemist completely. So you have that as, as, a, as a concern of the alchemist. They would try to stay away from society. The Rosicrucian Manifesto said you can help society with medicine and that's it. You cannot identify yourself as a Rosicrucian. You cannot use the art to make yourself wealthy or do anything like that. The only way you can become involved with humanity is through helping them to heal. Mm -hmm. That was the only thing that you were allowed to do as a Rosicrucian. And that sounds a little, you know, off-putting maybe to some people, but there was a reason for that. And that is that the Rosicrucian or the alchemist would have to stay apart from humanity and not be... um, tainted by it, by its its desires and its distractions and all the rest of it. It's a very solitary practice for the most part. And it takes a lifetime like it did in, in your case. And it is uh, something that uh, demands a personal devotion to it. And you wrote something, I haven't read your book, um, uh, full disclosure about that. <clears throat> so I won't be able to give you the, your, the optimal questions, but I have seen an excerpt where you talk about something which is the curse and the blessing of the modern age, uh, having to do with access. Because, uh, uh, like I said earlier today, if you just had that access back then, <laughs> it would be another matter. Sure. I, I think that's uh, the, the point I'm getting at that you write about is worth making. You, you, you remember what I'm referring to here? I, I'm afraid I don't. I'm trying to to rack my brain now remember what i said (laughs) this may be uh, i'm quoting you here stop me when you know what i'm talking about this may be at once the curse and the blessing of the modern age that the ready availability of printed books and now electronic versions easily downloadable from virtually anywhere on earth has enabled teachings to be preserved and passed down passed around and disseminated to anyone with even a glimmer of interest. It's a curse because this ready availability cheapens the teachings by making it that much easier to obtain without precisely what we're talking about here. All the psychological preparation of periods of intense studies, fasting, purifications and other conditioning techniques. The effect of this is noticeable on social media and website in which serious studies of various forms of esoteric are airily dismissed by casual readers who have difficulty understanding their specialized terminology due to a lack of years of preparatory instruction or even a basic classical education, but still feel competent enough to pass judgment I'll, I'll stop quoting there so no i like it go on <laughs> <laughs> it resonates doesn't it <laughs> I, I, I did remember i did remember it as you started but i didn't want to stop you okay. i guess okay. exactly mm. this is the problem because even uh, uh 
people like uh, Mersha Eliada, for instance, made that famous statement as well, uh, famous to me, perhaps not to no one, to no one else, but uh, talking about this same problem. There used to be an oral tradition, you know, you learned these things from someone else who had already been there and done that. And there, the transmission was by word of mouth, was person to person. And what's happened since Gutenberg, probably, or, or perhaps especially now in, in, in the social media age, is that there's no longer any requirement for this to happen. So the information just sits there. Yeah. It's without context. Mm. You know. So if you're uh, someone living in, well, in South Florida, for instance, <laughs> where I am at the moment, and you want to know about uh, a tantric practice that took place in Nepal – for instance, or, or or in northern India, you can do that. You can extract it from its context, look at it, and say to yourself, "Well, this is nonsense." <laughs> you know, or 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 you can be, think it makes a lot of sense. Oh, it's a conspiracy, whatever. But you don't understand. You don't understand it. I mean, the the mm. the, the, the context not there. The transmission is not there. Someone is not looking at you and saying, "Okay, this is what you need to know." Now you're just taking it all in, which means you're going to basically ninety percent of it's going to go over your head, and then you're going to say, "Well, this didn't work," you know. So this must be all garbage, and I'm out of yeah. here. So yeah, that is a problem. And if you listen to other people, I mean, I, I have a problem like this when I read people who have written about occultism and people who are supposed to be perhaps authorities. Mm -hmm on occultism and the approach they take is to be disrespectful on the one hand which is um, maybe I'm just too old <laughs> to, to look at it any other way but also very badly uh, misinformed as to what the the intentions were of various uh, ancient authors or classical authors or what they were trying to say there's this sort of airy as I say airy dismissal of this information which is which is sad. It's, it's the curse yeah. of the New Age. If I had had access to all this material when I was younger, as we started to say at the beginning of the show, um, I don't know what would have happened. If I had the technology at my fingertips then, uh, I probably would have looked at everything as if it all was the same, mm. as if it all was kind of homogeneous and, and nothing was more valuable than anything else. In a way, I'm thankful that I had to really fight and work hard for every scrap of information mm. And it meant going to libraries around the world and visiting temples and talking to people and doing this kind of research, learning foreign languages. I mean, all of this that I had to do built, you know, gradually built the understanding. It was the process. It was part of that same process. And you could digest it meanwhile. Yes. Uh, you got seeds that could mature in you, so you were ready for the new information. But, so, so. but as you, you point out too, uh, it used to be that uh, stuff was conveyed through initiation, were adjusted to the new level. It's, it's like any school system, basically. You would never dream of taking uh, what you call, uh, is it minors you call it, when you're six, seven, eight years old? Yes. You would never dream to... Mm -hmm. uh, equip them with books from the university. But that's based because, I mean, even if they could read the words there and make out some sense here and there, you would have a, a vivid discussion among the kids about what they were actually talking about. And like you say, most would go over their heads. And that's how I regard what's going on today in this digital age, where everyone has access to everything, which isn't a bad thing in itself, but we have lost something on that way. Not just for information, you see it even in lifestyle, in traditional 
societies, tribal societies, you had to be prepared. A man, let's say we are, we are two <clears throat> men talking here. So we had this initiation into manhood where you had to yes. face your fears. And I believe Eliade is one of them who has uh, written a lot about this uh, in his studies sure. of religion. So this is an, a point that often is missed and that I'm so happy you're making here because I agree it's, it's so important. Well, it is. The, the the emergence of the text, in a sense, has made it made the teacher irrelevant. And But there's something lost when the teacher is irrelevant. Mm. You know, when the teacher goes away and all you have is the text, the text doesn't initiate you. That process... Look at the modern school system. It's oh, even well, yeah. exoteric. <laughs> yeah, really. Just, uh, that's a, a computer can't be your teacher. That's no, just how it is. It can't. I mean, we're mistaking information for knowledge. Yeah. We're making a, a fusion of the two. Data is not knowledge, no. you know. Uh, facts are not truth. I mean, it's, it's, you can accumulate as many facts as you want. You're still not getting closer to the mm. truth. And the, the idea of personal experience with the information is what brings you to knowledge. And just Googling something is not, is not knowledge. We have the ability to access data, mm. but really not the ability to access knowledge. Knowledge, we have to do that on our own. And we kind of, in this modern age, people are resistant to that. They don't understand why that should be necessary. You know, why do I have to know the names of the 50 states in the United yeah. States if I could just Google mm. it, right? But there's something that's lost. The, the idea of the memory palace, mm. you know, this whole concept of having uh, in your own head all this information organized in such a way that you can access it and use it to interpret the world around you. That's missing. That's missing. Yes, it, uh, knowledge has become wisdom at that point. Yeah. And uh, according to the Sufis, they use uh, vivid poetic uh, allegory when they describe these things, and they call that wine. Now, who would drink wine who's not matured, who's not ready? <laughs> yes. Right? Right. So it's the same thing. That's what we're talking about here. Exactly. <laughs> become, a, that's why... become a connoisseur. Let the wine mature. Exactly. Yeah. And that's why the alchemical texts were written in code. I mean, so they understood that, you know, text... The written text was taking taking the, the teacher out of the equation. So the best way to protect the data, the best way to communicate it, was also to write in code. Now, the code was, re was necessary in some cases because you couldn't explain things using open language, clear language. But on the other hand, um, it was necessary to keep this information the province of the teacher. You could not just read a book and find out how to turn lead into gold. It was not going to happen. So they understood the danger inherent in printed material, right. in text, in handwritten material even. So they said, how do we keep this? How do we keep the teacher as part of the equation? Well, write it in code. So you need someone to decode it for you. You need someone who's actually done it. Yeah. Otherwise, the written text means nothing. And to me, that's brilliant. I think everything should be written that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, an enlightened it's society. A way, that would be great. An enlightened society. Yeah. And that's not to take away from you know, the people's right to know anything, right? Um, I can understand the democratization of knowledge is a, is a good thing, making everything open, making sure. everything available. Everybody should have access. But by the same token, what you're getting access to is raw material. You're not getting access to knowledge, and you're not getting access, as you say, to wisdom. That's still the same. 
Exactly. It's, it's like, don't bother the kids with university books. Let them exactly. have access to them by all means sure. and let them study at, at school until, if they want to, until they become examined uh, at the university. And, but then they should be provided those books. They could have them. They could inherit the books from their five years old, but they shouldn't be sure. <laughs> basing their worldview upon exactly. that. So, yeah. I think it's a saying in esoterics that you, you always have to start by learning there letters right exactly and the other famous quotation is when the the student is ready the master appears when when the person is actually prepared when the person is ready and you're not ready because you can google it no <laughs> you know <laughs> readiness does not mean you have a smartphone readiness means something else yeah. and we tend to forget that in in this modern time of social media we think that social media is the answer to all of our questions but but it isn't we're not ready for it we have to become ready we have to prepare ourselves uh and initiation is dwindling the idea of genuine initiation is very difficult to find so you're put on your own devices it becomes a self-initiation process and that only works if you're serious if you're committed and if you're disciplined otherwise you're just not going to get where you want to be mm. there's no one to do it for you mm. where are the initiates where are the secret societies now that can initiate effectively you know they're few and far between of course there is a concept in uh I'll say uh, both alchemy and Western hermeticism, if not entire worldwide esoterics, that <clears throat> when the pupil is ready, the master appears. And uh, uh, this concept of at some point you have to attain a communion, uh, to commune with the inner master. Exactly. And and this is, of course, a very popular concept in notwithstanding uh, New Age, uh, because it's, oh, it's agnostic idea, right? Oh, everybody can, can get the direct connection. We don't have to go through authorities, books, uh, groups, uh, guardians, all that stuff. And it is true, and I do agree with it. But again, here the problem is, uh, again, you have to learn the letters before you can start reading. Uh, people don't learn what is illusions. They have to understand what is not gold before they can exactly. try to find gold. And this I see as a big problem because, I mean, I'll tell something personal about myself. I don't do that too often on air, but I can't hide it in this discussion. And that is that I have for many years been teaching, among else, meditation. Mm -hmm. And I see that people who take a weekend course in whatever that isn't organized and certified by the state, where the state defines and determines whether you can be able to teach something or call yourself something, then it's up for grabs. And you will always find these puffs, these uh, not always swindlers, they... they trick themselves maybe <laughs> before they trick anyone else sure. and they set up they come to a, a weekend course and then they feel enlightened and then they set up courses and then you have this fantastic situation today that the blind is leading the blind or the one-eyed is, is God's and I say that in earlier times you had exact same hiding of the wisdom as you have today. The only difference is that in ancient times, you had to go through water and fire. You had to cross sure. continents, right? And and it was so hard to retrieve and so dangerous too because of the powers that be. But today, 
you have the same effect in that it's too much availability. People don't know to distinguish between yeah. genuine, authentic stuff and, and bull, or don't know what's just uh, so megalomaniac who has uh, altered the timeless uh, universal receipt. Many people are overwhelmed by information of all sorts, actually. You see the same thing in politics. Things that were truisms maybe just 30 years ago is now up for discussion again due to lack of knowledge or context. And and this is it's a kind of a scary thing in a way because it means that the bar is lowered and lowered and lowered. And before you know it, you have all these quacks that are set up as masters and, and experts who are calling the shots. And that's when people like uh, you who have studied this a lifetime needs to hide and duck because that's when they're coming after <laughs> the real oh, yeah. people. You see what I mean here with this kind of grim... Yeah, sure, sure. No, I, and I I agree a hundred percent. I I remember, for instance, back in the nineteen sixties, nineteen seventies, Israel Regardi, yeah. the very famous uh, member of the Golden Dawn, published the Golden Dawn Rituals because he wanted to take it away from the the, the secret societies who were abusing them. Right. Mm. So he said, "Here's a here's a system. Use it for self initiation. I've given you everything, but before you do, spend at least a year or two in psychoanalysis." Mm. You know, in other words, prepare yourself first. If you have the commitment to go through a period of psychoanalysis and, and psychotherapy to understand who you are, what you're bringing to the table, you know, as you say, in order to make gold, you must take gold. Uh, in order to approach this, you have to start with with knowing who you were. You have to understand, be able to tell the wheat from the chaff, the the gold from the lead. Otherwise, none of this is going to work. So you can initiate yourself. Here's the program. These are all the stages of the initiations you can go through. But you can't just open the book and read a couple of things out loud and call yourself a magician no. or an adeptus exemptus or whatever it is you want to call yourself. You have to you start at the beginning, and the beginning is a couple of years of first of psychotherapy. I think that kind of an approach is a little bit better mm. than simply Googling what is the third degree initiation and then doing that <laughs> in your living room. And then claiming, you know, advanced degrees. I mean, how many people have we come across? And I'm sure this has happened to you. <coughs> Excuse me. How many people have you come across who claim all sorts of advanced spiritual degrees? And these are people you would never even share a cup of coffee with. You wouldn't invite them into your home. You know, they're disreputable types. And but yet, and they're kind of stupid mm, sometimes. Mm. You know, they, they they don't have intellectual capacities, and they they really don't appear without being too judgmental, to have advanced spiritual capacities, and yet they're able to convince people because they have the language, you know, because they have the terminology, that they've accomplished all of these great things, and they take people in, and they create cults around them, and, and they, they do great damage. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll actually tell you, uh, I don't think I'll out his name here, but uh, I can tell you after the show, there's a guy who has become elevated in the conspiracy circles, because he has some factoid information about uh, Masonic stuff and Illuminati. And he presents himself as a whistleblower for, for the so-called Illuminati. Oh, and he presents... I know who you're talking about, yeah. Yeah. And I know he's lived in Norway. I know him. I know people around. I know the whole 
backstory. He's been a con man in different circles, even in esoteric circles. He even got access to the OTO. And uh, at some point, he uh, all bridges was burned, and he moved on to another area where he could make a success with all his bullshit. <laughs> and that was the conspiracy milieu, which has no checks and balances, which has very few... Uh, there are plenty bright system critics uh, among that, and, and we identify sure. with it to some degree, so by all means. But we have to be concerned about what is true, and we have to be able to have methods to distinguish between the fool's gold and the real gold. And we swear to the scientific method, but we distinguish between what you could say is the scientific method, as even back in the days of Pythagoras were alive and kicking, but between that and the scientific institutions, because they are vulnerable being hijacked by philosophical agendas like the materialism ideology. So sure. <clears throat> I think I talked myself away from the point here, but uh, no, I agree with you. We have to have uh, some means to be able to verify or distinguish between, like I said, fool's gold and, and real gold. Otherwise, we'll end up with a Con man. Sure. Oh, I just struck me. That's what's happening politically in America right now. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You won't get any argument from me there. <laughs> That's not the topic of today, but it's a grim world when, yeah. when you reward ignorance and you punish enlightenment. Yeah. And black becomes white. It, yeah. It's, it's very depressing when you, when you have to live here and deal with it and, and listen to the, the the absurdity of it and the arrogance mm. of what goes on. It's just incredible. And it, people who've been through this, I've I've been through everything from the the Kennedy assassinations mm. to the, the 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 Tet Offensive in '68 and to Watergate and all. I've been through the, the mill politically. I've seen it all. I've gone through it all, and I've never seen anything like this. This is this is the ultimate. You know? It is. It is. Uh, we focus upon this in other shows, but yeah. isn't it isn't it a case to be made just to be the devil's lawyer here? But I also genuinely entertain this notion that. There is it's also a blessing in disguise. Uh, I'll give you two examples. If you take the political scene, when old structures uh, disintegrate, when the emperors has no clothes and everybody knows it, as in the case of, of Clinton, yeah. uh, I mean, Hillary Clinton, uh, then mm -hmm. uh, the good thing is that, okay, in the beginning, they may follow the piper to, you know, to a children crusade, but right. at least... They leave the establishment, the old inherent uh, structures that used it for oppression and their own ends. And uh, at least they are at a point where they can reorientate themselves if they don't just go with the first train coming by, uh, leading them astray. So uh, at some point, it's good if you stop. Right. I mean, you said you were into sun. You, you, you question everything. You stop believing in the old structures. It's the same, I think, spiritually. That, okay, I used to be a Catholic, I used to be, uh, I don't know, a Sunni, uh, uh, whatever. And now the old notions, the old paradigm is uh, in ruins. And I now I need to reorientate myself. Oh, we have this Gnostic idea of I can actually do it myself. I don't have to follow what the middleman between me and God, the priesthood tells me. Right. I don't have to adjust to a corrupt structure that may have had 
a good thing once upon a time, but now is decayed into again control mechanism. So, so, so I think it's it's a it's not an either or here. It's a both and, and that there is a positive aspect to that. If people like you continue to work with what you work and 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 share it in an educating way, so that the new generations who lack the traditions because mm-hmm. i'm a traditionalist i see very many good things in traditions but when they they come they can then use use this maybe to reconnect i mean even thomas vaughan did that he forgot what rebecca told him but he mm-hmm. he got it back from his subconscious somehow it wasn't within him all the time yeah what do you think about that uh, idea no, yeah, I, I understand that, and I understand the, the sentiment behind it and that, and I believe that what's going to happen eventually is that this um, the the political structure in this country is going to undergo a subtle change no matter what. Right. No matter what we're talking about. Um, the people that are supporting one side or the other, there's you know the Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren people, they're almost in the same boat as the Trump people yeah. as far as wanting you know drastic changes to take place. And uh, and the Ron Paul people before them, right? And the Ron Paul people, sure. Yeah. So there's this there's this desire for this, this uh, getting sort of tired of what's going on and seeing the same old things. But by the same token, this is a country of 350 million people spread across 50 states. Mm-hmm. You know, it's an extremely complex organism, and to wipe the slate clean and start all over again is going to be extraordinarily difficult, not just for us, but for our our effect on the rest of the world. So there's a kind of a tightrope walk that has to take place, I think, politically here, which is why, you know, I I can sympathize completely with people who want drastic change, who want to see us go to a more democratic system where money is taken out and of the system and where, you know, there's a universal health care. Maybe that would be nice Mm -hmm. and things of that nature. But at the same time, to tear the place down and to build it up again in this in this country would be difficult. In a smaller country, maybe it's possible. Yeah. But in this country, with with the di- divergence of different peoples and ethnicities and everything else that's taking place here, and because we have so many weapons, you know, because we have we're the most heavily armed country on the planet, uh, not just uh, in terms of our military, yeah. but in terms of our private citizens, it's it's extremely dangerous uh, situation. But but spiritually wise, I, I think there's a spiritually case yeah. made for having access. No, I agree. Mm. From a spiritual point of view, I think so, you know. But by the same token, we we cannot um, just as we spoke about having, you can't become initiated on Google, um, you can't also become politically uh, proficient or efficient just because you have the access. Mm-hmm. You need more than the access. You need a certain level of. Uh, What's the word for it? Uh, responsibility, perhaps. Uh, I'd say reform, because uh, ref- yeah. because if you have a democratic system that has the potentiality to work, then the problem isn't really the system. It's how corrupted it's been by, you know, the human condition, the human nature. There will always be people. I mean, power is, is uh, corrupting and absolute power is absolutely corrupting. And I think you can make the same case spiritually because you have systems that worked obviously, since it brought geniuses like Thomas Vaughan. But people have weaknesses, and so when um, 
old structures crumble because of those weaknesses is not exactly necessarily the idea or the system or the intention of the system that's wrong. So let's go in a fascist direction, right? That just makes it worse. Right. <laughs> and, right. and so you can right. say the same about, yeah, if we, if we arrest all Freemasons, that won't necessarily help us or all you choose the spiritual group you want to criticize, right? Sure. It, it won't necessarily help us. It's a reformation perhaps that needs. Because I've been struggling with this for all my life because I've seen how the human nature will always, there will always, there's no systems to ensure that the wise and is no. worthy takes over. In fact, those are the, usually those who doesn't want to be exactly. presidents or grandmasters or what we are talking about, gurus. Exactly. You're exactly right. You know, the, 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 the best of us don't rise to the top in these circumstances. So what we, what we, I mean, anyone who wants to be president, <coughs> excuse me, of the United States, from a psychological point of view, you have to be a bit of a, of a sociopath, right? I mean, I mean, I mean, you're, you're aspiring to be the most powerful human being on the planet, at least in, in material terms, right? At least, at least in exoteric terms. Exoteric terms, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. you're aspiring to this. Who is, who aspires to that in their right mm. mind? You know, you have to have a lot of, you know, uh, chutzpah to decide you're going to go and do something like that and to do what it's what it takes to do what's necessary to get there. I mean, you're an initiate. There's no question about it. You, you're a kind of an initiate. But as uh, we, we say in Western esotericism, you can be a black magician, not just a white magician. They're both can be very equally powerful. But the the, the end result is going to be a little different. And I think that's what we're we're facing. We're facing this this bizarre existential choice. And because there isn't really anything better, and you can go and vote for a Green Party candidate or something, but that's just not going to work. So you're stuck with these choices. And so you you tend to say, well, I'm going to go with the lesser of two evils. But there's a very funny um, uh, pseudo-political movement uh, in this country, which is trying to elect Cthulhu as president. Uh, <laughs> I've never heard so, about that. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's Cthulhu for America. You know, and it's um, why choose the lesser of two evils, choose yeah. the greater of three. <laughs> That's a great point. <laughs> if you're going down that road, go all the way. If you're going, go all the way. Uh, wasn't it Crowley who said it's better to rule in hell? <laughs> uh, well, actually, that was that was John Milton. Wow. That was in Paradise oh, Lost. Right, right, right. Yeah. 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 That was Satan saying, "I'd rather, I'd rather rule in hell than serve in heaven." Yeah, non servium. Yeah, right. Exactly. So maybe Crowley was the one who adopted that. Oh, oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> in his personal life, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Hey, Peter, time, time has been flying while we had fun. Yeah. So I suggest we take a short break now, while while we're off topic, anyways, and then we'll be right back on track in part two. Sure. 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 All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. Welcome back to part two of this program. We are called From Tantra to Alchemy. And today we are conversing with Peter Levanda, a regular guest of ours. 
based upon uh, his new book uh, called The Tantric Alchemist, uh, which is about Thomas Vaughan and um, how Tantra and alchemy actually may be very related, not, not just in contents, but also actually in history. And, and, and we'll get, uh, and we'll explore this further. Mm-hmm. But before we continue, we're, <clears throat> we have, uh, about an hour or less le- left. I, I haven't read your book, so I just wonder if there's any particular avenue you want us to go down so that you feel satisfied we covered the most important basis or, or if it's all the same to you from here on. Um, huh. That's a good question. Um, if it's something very important, we we should. No, I, otherwise, I, I do have other questions. It's not that I'm empty of questions, but sure. it's rare that I don't know the work when I discuss it. So I want to give you the chance to. Yeah, I think that basically what we've discussed so far is probably as good an introduction as any. The book itself treats of individual works of Thomas Vaughn, and I sort of go through the background why you know why these works, why were they written this way what was going on and then i try to decode it i i look at the uh the information that the i i cite from the works and then i explain them in terms of uh, what they meant as far as indian or, or chinese alchemy would be concerned and why that's important mm. so it's it's really is a, a book that i think you could use to help translate thomas vaughn and then go from there to look at other alchemical texts there's a lot in there about indian alchemy about the the kala chakra tantra for instance mm. which is the core scripture of the tibetan buddhists uh, under the dalai lama so that that is looked at a lot of the i've done a lot of research in kala chakra tantra for for other works that i've been contemplating too as well so that's been a major focus of mine so that's in there as well as um, yeah, I'm, see- I'm seeing the contents here. Very interesting uh, titles you've given it. Though you're giving it nine and not seven steps, but you have. Sure. Uh, but I see you have uh, divided it into the terms of the great work. Yeah. Uh, Nigredo, Albedo, and Rubedo. Your, your chapter four, five, and six are called the Hermetic Contribution, the Chinese Contribution, and the Tantric Contribution. Yeah. What would you say are the. <laughs> I'm not going to ask you what are the, those contributions. I see it's hundreds of pages, but yeah. what would you say is the greatest distinction between the Chinese uh, or the Taoist, Hermetic, and Tantric uh, contribution? The Chinese and the Tantric are virtually identical, at least in the in the broad brush approach of it. The idea of placing the alchemical laboratory equipment inside the body and trying to show that there, we're talking about biological processes as well as chemical, that, per, that comes together pretty well. The hermetic contribution is the one that we're most familiar with in the West, obviously, because of the Greco-Egyptian uh, the Hermes Trismegistus, thrice greatest Hermes, and as above, so below, the Emerald Tablet. And that idea that the the universe outside and the universe inside are mirrors of each other. This is kind of always a throwaway topic, right? People say, well, microcosm, macrocosm, it's all the same or something, without actually realizing what that means in actual terms. We, we pay lip service to that concept, but we don't really appreciate it for what it means, that actually the external world is within, is internal as well, um, and trying to make that or trying to experience that as a reality. Because we have, in our terms of our consciousness, we have separation. We are separated from each other. We're separated from the material world. We're operating within it. We're sort of wandering through it like Forrest Gump, you know, <laughs> through, right. through, through the landscape without being aware of what's going on. 
but mm. there actually is there we're much more tightly connected to it and it requires a certain level of consciousness to see that and once you see that again you're involved in the process so the hermetic stuff is kind of a gateway drug to the indian and the chinese because the, i use familiar terms from hermeticism i talk about the uh, the florentine academy and about uh, marcio oh. ficino and all of that trying right. to to give an idea as to how did we get here who was Agrippa, for instance? Why? Yeah. Why does Thomas Vaughn talk about Agrippa so much? So he was he was very influenced by Agrippa. Absolutely, because I, I thought he was very influenced by Kunroth and Paracelsus. But he goes even further back. He goes further back. He, he's very influenced by Agrippa, and. Agrippa as an alchemist. Most people don't think of Agrippa as an alchemist. They look at the three books of occult philosophy and it's kind of, you know, sympathetic magic and it's occultism the way we kind of understand it. It's astrology. There's all of that. There's just a little bit of alchemy in there. But Agrippa was himself an alchemist. He never went anywhere without his alchemical laboratory. And he was burned on a stake, uh, mind you, people. Wasn't he? Wasn't he one of those who were killed for his uh, holy work by the Catholics? I don't think it was. I don't think Agrippa, uh, Giordano Bruno, was. Oh yeah, I mixed them. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, Bruno. in 1600, he was burned at the stake. Yeah, Bruno was was definitely the victim, not Agrippa. But Agrippa was, of course, he was feared as a magician. You know, mm -hmm. he was feared as this person who was somehow in contact with the devil, and he had problems in certain towns that he passed through. You know, he had difficulties with people who thought he was a mist or something. But Agrippa was was an alchemist. He understood alchemy very well. And Vaughn refers to Agrippa a great deal. He also refers, oddly enough to the abbot Trithemius. And Trithemius, of course, the abbot of, of von Spanheim, was a Catholic clergyman. He was the abbot of a monastery who basically invented the modern science of cryptography. Uh, uh, and, and he did that in order to conceal his works from prying eyes. Is this what was picked up later by John Dee and, and Bacon and, and those guys? Right. Trithemius was a, a very influential uh, figure because he was an occultist, and he was very involved in cryptography. Uh, he was very involved in mysticism in general. Yeah. And he got into a lot of trouble because one of his letters uh, was intercepted somehow. And there was occult stuff in there. And they started to build up stories about Trithemius being in league with the devil and having statues that could talk to him and all this other stuff. And Trithemius and Agrippa knew each other. They corresponded. And then um, Vaughn was an inheritor of some of that information. He read deeply in Agrippa and Trithemius. Mm. These are interesting people to 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 claim as your you know your spiritual tradition your spiritual uh, initiators so this is this is something that vaughn really uh, exemplifies that there is no real difference between ceremonial magic the way we understand it the higher forms of magic and alchemy and that's what arthur wait understood you mean you mean theurgy uh, because ceremonial magic doesn't have to be higher form. It can be a so-called lower form of magic. But uh, as I understand it, theurgy is the word for divine magic. Yeah, Just nitpicking here, but better get it right. We have a very bright listenership to <laughs> pick up on that. Well, if, look at it this way. The, what would you call the magic as performed by the Golden Dawn, as an example? <sighs> You really ask me to make a judgment call on the Golden Dawn. <laughs> I, I'm I'm not that impressed by them, to be quite honest. But but I, I do appreciate their historical and philosophical value, just like I do with Theosophy, the value of uh -huh. it. 
But to me, it's not the purest form, though. But that's me. I, I don't mean to dis no, dismiss. We probably have Golden Dawn listeners here, too. <laughs> no, 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 no. Well, I'll come to their defense just a little bit. Okay, cool. I understand what you're saying. By the same mm. token, though, what the Golden Dawn accomplished was tremendous. Oh, yeah. They had actually codified an entire occult system. They made an actual system out of this morass of documentation, the various grimoires and Egyptian stuff and Indian stuff and, you know, notwithstanding the Anokian notwithstanding, And they managed to create this elaborate, mm. heavily articulated system of magic. For that, I think they were geniuses. Um, as far as who they were and how they uh, manifested this in the world, that's a different story. And of course, Aleister Crowley being their most <laughs> famous representative, <laughs> most famous creator. Problem child, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's not just a different story, it's the human story. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's a very human story. On the one hand, you have Yeats, who won the Nobel Prize for Literature, and you have, on the other hand, Crowley, uh, all coming out of the Golden Dawn, and Arthur Waite. So hmm. it was it was this it was a, a laboratory basically, and it, it gave rise to all sorts of weird and noxious elements, maybe. But it was ceremonial magic from the point of view of we're going to proceed up a ladder of lights. We're going to use the Kabbalah as our guide, and we're going to go from very base forms of magic. We're going to try to get to the higher forms. Mm. Um, so theurgy, I agree with you, is the term that we would use for higher magic. And Arthur Waite really seemed to think that that's where Thomas Vaughn was going. When Arthur Waite mm. compiled Thomas Vaughn's works, he kind of looked at Waite as the as the exemplar of this higher spiritual uh, wedding of alchemy and magic. In fact, he came to Thomas Vaughn almost the way I did. He came to it almost by accident. Mary um, Atwood had written this very famous book on alchemy, and it, this this book that was burned by her father. You know, only a few copies remained, and uh, she was very influenced by Thomas Vaughn when she wrote her book on alchemy, oh. and then. Uh, Wait, read her book, and then came across Thomas Vaughn there. And actually, Thomas, uh, actually Arthur Edward Wait became very involved in the study of esoterica because of what he read about Thomas Vaughn. Hmm. So there's this, this continuum that Vaughn had exerted so much influence on so many of the most famous uh, you know writers of of the 20th century on alchemy and magic. There was Thomas Vaughn; it was always there. Hmm. So whether it was uh, Mary Atwood. Uh, and her book on alchemy, and then to t to Arthur Edward Waite, created basically Arthur Edward Waite, and he, he joined the Golden Dawn, he became involved in all of his study, and then from Waite to Crowley, Crowley mentions Thomas Vaughn and his Gnostic Mass, he's one of the saints of the Gnostic Mass, mm -hmm. and we don't know why, because Crowley never mentions him again mm. in any way, shape, or form in any of his writings. And, and those saints, that's quite a group of <laughs> people. So oh, yeah. He must have thought highly of him if he made it to that list. Yeah, he must have, but we don't know why, you know. Mm. And then finally, as we say, t Kenneth Rexroth, then re-finding and rediscovering uh, Thomas Vaughn. All of this happened, you know, since basically since Mary Atwood. Yeah. And uh, her famous text, uh, which whose name escapes me now, A Skeptical Inquiry, I think, into, um, uh, what is it? I have the I book. help you there, no, I don't uh, know. Uh, if you just hold on a second, I have it right on my shelf. Sure. Yes, it's called, excuse me, A Suggestive Inquiry into Hermetic Philosophy, Marianne Atwood. And she mentions Vaughn in several places, and she, she uh, okay. here she is, Thomas Vaughn, whose pseudonym of Eugenius Philolathes has notwithstanding the very obvious distinction of his mind and style, mm. causing him to be confounded with the foregoing Irenaeus, <laughs> 
was the author of several luminous little treatises, etc., on the higher grounds of this mystic science. So she praised Thomas Vaughan, and it was from we find from Arthur Edward Waite's autobiography that it, he that Vaughan is the one that got him started on this whole path. And he came across it because of that book by Mary Atwood. I don't know. I'm sure many of your readers who are familiar with alchemy know this book. Mary Ann Atwood was the daughter of a, a man who was very involved in alchemy. And she was sort of sitting there and taking it all in, taking it all in. She finally wrote her own book on alchemy, which is the one I just mentioned, hmm. a suggestive inquiry, and had it printed and ready to publish and put in the bookstores. And then her father read it and said, oh, no, you don't. <laughs> you're giving, giving a <laughs> you're, you're spilling too many beans here absolutely he became incensed ah. he went and found every single copy of the book that he could and they actually burned them outside the house Jeez. in a complete auto de fe you know, a complete uh, holocaust of, of flames they burned every single copy but one or two did manage to escape ah. and they've become now you know a very famous this is a very famous text ah. uh, I think the Yogi Publication Society is the one who finally published a beautiful beautifully bound copy of it oh 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 was she related then to because there is an at is atwood you say uh atwood no i'm thinking atkinson but but she remind me though of maria corelli isn't that her name uh, the, uh, maria corelli yes i understand sure yeah who she who too uh, learned from her father there were many bright uh, esoteric women in the old days despite the circumstances i'd say but rebecca is one of the earliest uh, yes. i've heard in in our western Uh, well, but but I think <clears throat> you should tell us a little something about a certain image because I managed to squeeze out to you when you were announcing this book on uh, Pasang in another show we had. You made a point out of that, and like Tobias Sherton told me too, uh, he didn't write that much, Mr. Rohan, but there is this image uh, in one of the book, it may have been the Lumine book, where you, I don't know if that was a breakthrough, but you could use that image to decode. Oh, yeah. That was a very important ingredient, wasn't it? Yeah, there's only one image that Vaughn ever published. It's very funny. He wrote a lot of books, of course, on mm -hmm. on alchemy, but only – and alchemical books are famous for having all sorts of pictures. But he published one book, From Lumen to Lumine. It was published in 1651. And it shows you the, the magic mountain, the invisible magic mountain. It shows you an angel. It shows you a blindfolded man. It shows you at the bottom a, a, a dragon biting its tail. I know an image called Mons Philosophorum, the, the mountain of the adepts. That, that's another one, right? It's not the same, or are we talking about the same? Uh, there, is, there are many versions of it. Uh, Vaughn's version is called Scoli Magicae Typus. Um, and it's the, the mountain in the middle is called Mons Magiorum Invisibilis. So that's maybe where you could confuse one with the other. But it's a magic mountain. But it's not the one that you're thinking probably with the seven steps inside and all of that. Yeah, exactly. No, yeah. no, yeah, no. It's it's a different one. It's the only one, the only image that Vaughn ever published. And I have it in the book. Uh, sorry, I just found it online. So go on. I have it in front of me. So so the way I've I've done it in the book is that we have two images facing each other. One is the Lumen de Lumine from Thomas Vaughn. And on the other side, there's the Neijing Du, which is the chart of the inner warp from Chinese alchemy. Mm. And if you look at the two images and you compare them uh, side by side, you realize that they're really talking about the same thing. In the Chinese image, there's a mountain at the top. There is a dragon uh, spiraling down the serpent at the bottom. There's um, 
Hang on, have you found a Chinese version of this that predates Vaughn's? Yes. Wow. So you can just compare them then, like you do now. Like I'm doing now. I'm just I'm looking at them right now, and you can actually see there's so much um, that's the same. Do you reproduce both in your book? Yes. Cool. Excellent. Now, you have to look at the, the Vaughn version is a very Europeanized version. Yeah, typical alchemy. The Chinese version, of course, is, is typically Chinese. But if you compare the two, if you look carefully at the symbolism mm-hmm. in each place, you're going to see that they're talking about the same thing, even, a, even to the point where in Vaughn's image, you have the sun and the moon at the top, the sun on the left, the moon on the right. And if you look at the Chinese version, the sun and moon are in the same place. There's a mountain in the middle just the way it is in Vaughn's work. Hmm. And you can just follow the imagery on down. Um, there's a temple where Vaughn has an altar with a candle. Uh, there's spiral. There's a yin yang symbol at the bottom, and Vaughn has the serpent biting its tail in the bottom. I mean, it, it's there's a child in both. Uh, it's it's fascinating. It's actually quite fascinating to look at the two images. So yes, that's that was I made that very clear in the book, and I I've had the images facing each other, so you can just look at it easily and compare one to the other yourself. Huh. Yeah, it's a it's a very rich, typical good image to meditate on. Yeah, for getting ideas. I just found a bigger version now, so I see. I recognize here many classical alchemical symbols meant to depict the process and the different outcomes. Do you have the the process here where you have to split in alchemy? There's a very uh, common principle is that first you take the uh, prima materia what you start with then you have to split it you have to disintegrate to uh, you said the dross the 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 crude stuff from right. the, and then you have to treat both of them on their own before you refuse them into a new and higher mm-hmm. combination so to speak and that's that th- those elementary principles are also reproduced here yes so yeah Interesting. In fact, there's a lot, too, about Rebecca. Uh, Rebecca's influence is also very strong where this is concerned. We're talking probably about a real chemical wedding between uh, in the real world between Thomas and Rebecca and also on, on an esoteric realm between the two of them where some of these same elements are reproduced in his dreams and reproduced in his alchemical work as well. So you think they ritualized this, they formalized it symbolically? Oh, I, th- the- I think they did. I think that they had a very strong working partnership. I mean, it obviously is that Vaughn admits as much, and they worked together in the laboratory, which meant that they worked together in, in a spiritual capacity as well. Vaughn is extremely spiritualized in his work. I mean, excessively so, even though he's talking about using sexual terms constantly. We in the West are not used to this. You know, we in the West think religion is over here and sex is over there. Never the twain shall meet. But in India and in China, there is no such division. And and among the spermognostics in right. our Western culture, too, before they were uh, well, yeah. wiped out, of course. Sure. Yeah. But, yeah. But, um, uh, say, uh, speaking of gold, many alchemists, uh, even though it wasn't a primary goal, uh, although many kings and, and royalties tried to encourage, bribe, or even force them to do it, many of them did make gold. Well, yeah. <clears throat> Again, not as the main focus, but 
I mean, if you first master the principles of nature, why not also use it like that? My question regarding Thomas is that if you know if there were any rumors about him having achieved that. Yeah, I mean, people did claim that he did. In fact, one one of his um, mm. one of his associates claimed that that Vaughn had discovered the stone. I mean, there there was no doubt in his mind that Vaughn had done this, and that was one of the reasons why you know, along with the death of his wife, that Vaughn suddenly re- removed himself from society in general. I mean, he was just not heard from again. He never made a big splash. He was he when he, as a writer, he would gleefully go on the attack against people who attacked him. You know, and there were alchemists who attacked him and said he was full of crap, that he didn't know what he was talking about, which is a common thing among alchemists. They're always doing that to each other. You sometimes wonder if it's a ludibrium of some kind. It's a kind of a game that they play. <laughs> yeah. Because they just delight in saying, you don't know anything, you know, and each one says you don't know anything, and that just goes on and on in circles. Mm. So he was he was a very enthusiastic participant in these discussions, and he attacked Thomas More, and he attacked all kinds of other people who were attacking him. I mean, he was just... He was he was he's a crazy man, mm. and then suddenly, at a certain point, he disappears from the scene completely. He's politically safe at this point. Mm. You know, he's not running from you know Cromwell or anything. He's he's fine. He's not in jail. He was in jail under Cromwell for a while, mm. but now he's he's fine. He's he seems to be uh, self sufficient economically, financially, whatever. He's he has a, a secure place uh, working for the court, but he basically falls out of the public eye completely. And one of the people who uh, worked with him, who knew him, said he had discovered the stone. And there's an implication that because his wife was not there to share that uh, accomplishment with him, that there was some maybe a sense of guilt or a sense of sadness connected with it. It's, it's just hinted at briefly that there might have been some connection that way. But we just don't know for sure. It's one of the great enduring mysteries. What happened to Rebecca? And uh, why did Kenneth Rexroth say that it was their experiments that killed her? Yeah. You know, so I've done a lot of research on that, on on what Rexroth called uh, unguided autonomic nervous system experiments, and came to the conclusion that there are cases around the world where this has happened in modern times, when this has happened, when people have died because of of doing you know yoga in, in an impossibly aggressive way. Yeah. Um, with this in mind, so yeah. Yeah, traditionally, the dry path has been said to, yes, it's quicker, but it's also more dangerous. Yes. And that the uh, humid path will be safer, but it will take longer time. And you will always have these people, maybe it's AGHD people, who say, screw the long way, I'm taking the risks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and any alchemist with uh, any respect for himself has to go out either by uh, an, a laboratory blow or yeah. just disappearing, a la Nicolas Flamel or whatever. So... So and here we have uh, both in this story. He he did disappear at some point, but <clears throat> I, I made a point out of that both of them had these accidental deaths connected to their work, which, by the way, is of course a very strong indication that they were onto something, that they were so devoted and, and genuine in their work that it did involve risks. I mean, only an obsessed guy, a devoted guy will yeah. <laughs> continue his work sure. with the risk of his own life, right? Sure. But but do you have any thoughts about um, what may have caused you? You said uh, they worked with mercury, and that's so interesting because, as you may know, 
Mercury has often been popping up in connection to dimension openings, like in anti-gravity, sure. a time machine. You have the double rotations that go the opposite way to kind of a trick, yeah. <laughs> in my layman's terms, uh, how our dimensions are wired, uh, because then you get, uh, you know, you put up forces against forces. And, and see what happens, kind of. And Mercury is always involved. I, th- I think Pharrell told me once that in an ancient Chinese text, they talked about Mercury in relation to time and time travel and stuff like that. So, uh, or, or was it space travel? So, so Mercury has always been, and also in classical alchemy, that's very often mentioned, but many alchemical works say, no, 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 when we're talking about Mercury, we're not really talking about the, uh, what they call the vulgar version, Quicksilver. Right. So the, the, what, what do you make all, out of all this? <laughs> well, it seems as though Thomas Vaughn died handling real Mercury. I mean the mercury that we know. Uh, that that might that might be just a, a way of saying something else. However, we don't know. Uh, one of this one of the stories has he died from poisoning by mercury. Another has him blowing up. So even the stories about his death, which were written at the time, contradict each other. So we don't know exactly how he died. Did he ingest something, or did he blow himself up? Or did he retire? Or did he simply retire like a Nicholas Flamel or a Falconelli? Hmm. You know that which is also possible. Because we don't really know what happened to Thomas Vaughn after that. We don't know about his where he was buried. I don't think there's a gravesite for him uh, that has a body in it. So mm-hmm. Henry Vaughn was a different story, but Thomas Vaughn, I just don't know. Rebecca Vaughn uh, also was very hard to find. So I, the Mercury aspect, yes, Mercury is both uh, a symbol and it's also the actual substance. When you're working in an alchemical laboratory, you're going to work with mercury regardless. I mean, the actual physical substance, because you're going to start there. I mean, like you said, the letters of the alphabet, you have to start somewhere. So you're going to start with salt and sulfur and mercury. And you're going to see the interactions between these chemicals, and you're going to see chemical changes that take place. And these chemical changes are referenced in the alchemical text different ways. But you're going to understand suddenly what they mean by the green dragon or you know the red lion these things are going to become obvious when the chemical actions take place in front of you mm. but that but then you at the same time you realize okay well now what <laughs> you know <laughs> now this has happened i saw this okay cool now where do i go from here and that's where the real alchemy comes in these little tricks of the laboratory i mean i used to have a chemistry set when i was a kid you know, that was something every kid my age had back in the 1950s. Uh, you would get a Gilbert chemistry set, and you had test tubes and lots of different chemicals, and they told you mix this with, with this and watch what happens, right? Mm-hmm. And things would happen. Things would foam up or things would spark or things would change color, and that was your introduction to chemistry. But it's also introduction to alchemy. It's these things that have no color in and of themselves. When you combine them, they change color or they foam up or they start to spark or they do different things. And this is your introduction to the the theories of process. You get the right things together in the right combinations and then you, you watch what happens. And this is just your introduction. Like I say, it's the gateway drug. So yeah. and at, at a certain point, though, when you understand that the real mercury you know, our mercury, philosophical mercury, is not the vulgar mercury. At a certain other level, you get past that and you go back to the real mercury because now you're looking for something else. And that might have been what happened to Vaughn mm. because Vaughn is very clear 
in his writings that it's not what you think it is. And it's it's not regular mercury and it's not regular lead and sulfur and salt. These are other substances. He says that explicitly in his writings. Then why is he fooling around with mercury in his laboratory years later? You know, so there, there's the, the Zen thing of the mountains and rivers. You go through that and you begin to look at the actual chemicals you were playing with when you were a kid and you look at them with new appreciation that there's something else going on there. Yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, we are closing up to the end here. Um, yeah, we've talked about, yeah, you, you, you say something in your book about uh, the problem. And in that same chapter, you do talk about what we talked about here, or mercury, or sulfur, in the process of seeking the elixir vita. Uh, what would you say is, um, what, what does this refer to in your book, the problem, the outline of the problem? Oh, the problem is basically, what is alchemy? What is the transformation? What does that even mean? What is the alchemy? What's the basis for this whole, this whole thing? The problem is that alchemical texts are written for alchemists. They're not written for general people. Yeah, they're manuals from, from yeah, to colleagues, from one scientist to another. Exactly. They're, they're only for colleagues. They're not for, the peop for people in the street, which is why the people, you know, the average person can't understand a word that's in them. The, mm. the surrealists loved alchemy. André Breton wrote about it. And the symbolists. And the symbolists. Max Ernst uh, wrote about alchemy. Alchemy in influenced his, his work tremendously. Even Salvador Dali. And everybody was fast. All the alchemists and the symbolists were fascinated by alchemy because alchemy was this meta language. Mm. They, they at first were attracted to it because the symbolic language was kind of trippy. You know, it was sort of mm. like you were on drugs or something. And then Later, they began to see a logic to it. It was the language of dreams. So mm. they're right to a, to a certain extent. And I'm fascinated by the surrealists, and I've studied the surrealists for years. I'm 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 always reading about surrealism and studying surrealist art because of that connection. Oh. They understood okay. the connection between art and the psyche, and, and alchemy. And this is like a missing piece for my for my own research is, is surrealism. So I've studied. Um, so, so did the symbolism. I've studied them, not the yeah. surrealists. But uh, all you said now about the surrealists can be said about the symbolists too. Yes, certainly. Hmm. But the the subject was too vast. I figured I'd focus just on the surrealists. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> and you know, especially Max Ernst and André Breton. I mean, this, their, right. their writings were so rich with this this material. And of course, they were influenced by Freud, and they were influenced by you know, the new science of psycho psychoanalysis. So this, to me, was just a fascinating. You know, very rich, creative vein. And but a lot of them, they sort of missed the point. The alchemical language is a very deliberate language. It's not just guys writing stream of consciousness, which is what yeah. surrealists seem to think it was. It was not stream of consciousness. This was a meta language. This was a, a coded language, but it was using English or whatever the, the vernacular was to communicate things that nor ordinary language either was not able to communicate or which was too dangerous to communicate in regular language. And so that's the outline of the problem there for me. Uh, how do we decode Thomas Vaughn's writings, especially – when Kenneth Rexroth says Thomas Vaughn gives the show away, he reveals yeah. it. You know, so what does that mean? So I had to go back and say, this is the problem. The problem is the language. And we're going to look at twilight language. We're going to try to understand this type of language because the alchemists in India and China use the same language. They use the same terms and they use the same coded instructions in their own language. So there's, a, there's a, an alchemical language in Chinese. There's an alchemical language in, in Sanskrit. And it's the same language. They're using the same terminology. 
Yeah, you say that, but it's weird because for my studies in other fields of esoteric where there's been compersion, let's say take the elements, for instance, or let's say take uh, anything actually, death studies, the bardo, the death books of different cultures, you'll see a very huge problem when it comes to esoteric streams within different religions, namely that they do apply uh, different... I say languages then, uh, symbols, and that sure. what makes sense within the context of one uh, and what makes sense within the context of another will apparently be in dissonance. But if you dig deep enough in both, then there's no point riding several horses at the same time. Yeah. So choose one, stick to it, and go deep. But if you would do, you would, again, like you say, it's in Zen, right? First the water is water, then it's not, and then it's back to being. A stone is a stone and a water is water. And that's kind of the same thing here that if you go deep enough, you go through all the differences and you will come back to a reconnection. But that, if that's a truism, then it sounds very counterintuitive that you now say that, no, no, it's downright tangible, the same thing they're talking about. Really? And I don't doubt it, but even though they operate within completely different reference points, uh, symbology and religion... That sounds so very, then it must have been very practical, very down to what you can take and touch I, I, for I, that to be accomplishable. Sure, I can understand that, that that's the takeaway. And mm. But I would clarify it by saying that religions and cultures are constantly at war with each other, but mystics understand each other. Yeah. Mystics communicate. And it's not necessarily because what they do is as tangible as chemistry, but it is tangible to them. So a Jewish mystic and a Tibetan mystic can have a conversation and understand each other perfectly yeah. when they describe mystical states. Oh, they don't, they don't even have to describe mystical states. They can at the surface, if you're like a little Benjamin with big ears, they can talk about the weather and they have just conveyed deep alchemical secrets e to each other. Exactly. <laughs> and they don't share the same context, right? But they do yeah, share no. the same experience. And that's what alchemy, that's mm -hmm. what I believe this, this uh, language is all about. As I say, it's about a process rather than about specific items. Mm. They're using the specific items as symbols to describe the process. And the difference, the, the thing is that's striking to me, is they're using the same symbols across the board. They're using, for instance, the retort and the crucible. You'll find retorts and crucible and mercury referenced in Chinese, Indian, and Western alchemy. And the difference being that in China and India, they're placing the crucibles and the retorts and the mercury, etc., in the human body as a map whereas in western alchemy of course it's in the laboratory and but it's the it's the same symbolism we're trying to transmute this we have a prima materia we're going to refine it it's going to become something else we're going to create another kind of of substance out of the wedding of these substances tantra is all about the chemical wedding that's really what it is an enactment of so there's something that's basic to humanity it's basic to nature it's basic to our uh, it's basic to creation an ongoing yeah. process that they've all seen the same way and they're all communicating with each other in this in, incomprehensible language to us but they are communicating with each other and they are using the same symbols to to do it. it's like math basically mm -hmm. math would be the same no matter where you are right at least yeah. in the present day 
No, they go as far as to say that if there was one language that any being in the universe can communicate with each other, which is what mainstream science says about this, it would be math. Right. Because it's so universal, it's so um, irregardless of human culture, sure. religion, notions, ideas. And, and it's actually my approach to the mystical. I, I prefer approaching it through numbers, mm-hmm. uh, call it maybe the Pythagorean way. Right. So I'm with you there. But uh, uh, when you say that um, we're talking about words and meaning, uh, I have to add, and you haven't said this yourself, and you should do it when you talk about the book in different interviews. I recommend that for that advertisement effect, that you say that you actually have a very rich glossary in the book that uh, belongs to the story here. I've been uh, browsing through it, and uh, it's quite uh, impressive and enticing. It makes me even more want to read the book. Because I, I realize, uh, you know, what you're touching here. And, and it's very useful for those who are not that trained in what we're talking about. Uh, if we have listeners here who are not that into esoterics, we will uh, come off here as two nerds. But get this book. You will get then also the glossary, which in itself is valuable. It's a huge glossary, many pages, and it will actually teach you the basic words you need to know to operate within any field of esoterica, be that Occidental or Oriental, I'd say. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I agree. I mean, it's, it combines Chinese and Sanskrit and Kabbalistic and various other terminology, so you can see exactly what's being... Egypt, everything. Egypt, everything is there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Very good, very good. So you take no chances. You're going to spoon-feed us this story here. Sure. Yeah, that's for sure. Sure. Well, I, I did that with The Dark Lord also, the book about Lovecraft and uh, Crowley and Kenneth Grant. Okay, I haven't read it, but I heard about it. The yeah. idea. Well, I, I, I did that. I, I felt that I was going to make a contribution to this discussion because Grant would mention a lot of these tantric terms, but he wouldn't really describe them or enumerate them. So I said, okay, what I'm going to do in my, in my book on Grant is I'm going to give you uh, an actual listing of some of the things that he talks about that he doesn't describe. So at least there'll be something useful in the book <laughs> if you didn't like anything else <laughs> yeah. that I wrote. Right. And that Grant talks about the 16 kalas, these these feminine essences of, of the female body that are different at different times of the day or the month, and et cetera, et cetera. They're used for occult purposes in Grant's system. But he nowhere describes what they are. He doesn't list them out. He just says there's 16. Okay, now what? You know, so mm. I went through, I found the names for them, I found the descriptions, and I went through and gave an explanation of all of that for the those who are still using the Grant uh, Typhonian magic system. And, you know, things like that, I feel, add to the, the value of a, of a book. In the Hitler mm. legacy, I gave the, the entire address book of Hans Ulrich Rudel, right, which was captured and found and has all the names of all of his Nazi compatriots around the world, basically an Odessa file all in itself with names, addresses, and phone numbers. Wow. So I always like to try to do that, to try to add something that's going to be, you know, that you're not going to find anywhere else, basically. Whether you agree with my approach to the material or not, there'll be something in there you'll find that, okay, I can use the book for this, you know. So so you are a rebel, after all, because uh, traditionally <laughs> the alchemist explained the obscure with the even more obscure, <laughs> but you're deviating from that route. I'm trying. Thank God. Yes, I'm trying to. <laughs> <laughs> to our benefit. Um, before we uh, end this, I have a, another question which may not seem to be relevant at all, but I, I find it interesting. And that is what you make of, you know, we talk about dreams, consciousness, 
What do we make of ayahuasca? Well, I haven't taken ayahuasca myself, but I've taken a lot of other stuff. Um, I've taken mushrooms and uh, you know LSD once, or almost by a mistake, actually, um, <laughs> which is a funny story. But anyway, there was that. There was mushrooms on more than one occasion, and hmm. uh, ayahuasca. I'm I'm guessing is going to have would have similar. Of course, all herbs are different. All drugs are different, and different effects. And LSD is quite different from psilocybin, for instance, for for mushrooms. But, but the interesting thing about ayahuasca is that it, it helps the DN, DMT production. Sure, yeah. So do you think it has a role within modern alchemy? Well, everything that exists has a role in modern alchemy. That's been my point <laughs> from the beginning. It's all about the process. <laughs> Touche. But, yeah. uh, you know, it has a specific role, perhaps, sure. I mean, DMT, I think, well, my experience on, for instance, on uh, on, on psilocybin, on mushrooms, on the actual it ingesting the mushrooms themselves was valuable and it only needed to be done once mm. because what it does is it trains you, it teaches you that you can look at the world very differently than the way that you're used to and that you can see things uh, much more vivid and much more, more startling and much more luminous and that this is one way of seeing creation. And that to me, it proves it to you using your own nervous system to say, look, this is what you're going to see. That alone is is enlightening, not to put too fine a point on it. That alone is is an initiation. I mean, it when you abuse it, of course, then you've lost the effect of it. But if with with, uh, with psilocybin, it was a, a question of opening up this. I'm beginning to confuse, you know, hearing with seeing, with feeling. But at the same time, I'm looking at a a Tibetan tanka that I had on the wall. I see it in absolute motion. And then I can say, oh, this is what was meant. This is what they tried to to do with you know this this elaborate mandala with the god stamping on the lotus blossom uh, altar. This was all suddenly in motion. This was all happening like a cartoon. And you could see it and think, oh, wow, this is what was intended. Or you could see the colors and realize this is this is the effect they were going for. So this kind of illumination is 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 valuable and i think the dmt experience is is valuable uh for that reason too i mean all that i've read about dmt seems to argue exactly the way i would argue for psilocybin but perhaps more so so mm. this molecule yeah i think it it's a way of training the nervous system or at least training consciousness that your nervous system is capable of so much more than you give it credit for that you're using it for yeah, and as uh, Joseph Farrell said in a philosophical show we did with him, is that relearning is done by attributes, by the analogical thinking. And in that way, synesthesy phenomenon that can be induced by psychoactive drugs, it has, it's healthy because we learn to translate. We be so stuck in the ordinary translation that, yeah, the vibrations that touches my nose, the smell vibrations uh, are experienced as that. Mm-hmm. Uh, completely different and distinct from the vibrations I pick up with my <clears throat> fingers, fingertips, the tactile vibrations, again, different from the visual, from the sound, etc. So sure. when we get shaken out of that and we have to start to look for new connections because that's inherent in human nature, trying to look for relations and connections, that's the problem with pareidolia, right? So, right. So, but we, we get that synesthesia experience where it can make sense still, even though we bypass the ordinary roots of connections, logic, I guess we could call it. So, uh, or rationality. And here we have an irrational way to get to the truth. Maybe, maybe this is more of a humid way. 
mm. than a dry way. But but you you know what what, sure. what I'm saying here. Sure, yeah. and and I agree. I mean, it's that is that is a, I would say the humid way probably, and mm. it, it's it's a training. It's it's a it's a training of the consciousness. It says, okay, my consciousness is capable of so much more. It, actually, it trains your conscious mind to understand what the nervous system is all about, which again brings us back to the autonomic nervous system. Our autonomic nervous system is set up to interpret the world a certain way, uh, and our nervous system in general is set up that way. What if we throw it a you know what if we throw a a, a monkey wrench into the works right what, what is it going to do? How is it going to react? How will it rewire itself to accommodate this new experience? I think it's valuable because the experience of the supernatural, the direct experience of something supernatural, is different yet again. Like with DMT or with, with psychoactive mm. drugs, you're taking a substance which is deliberately rewiring you a little bit to, to show you something else. But then if you're totally stone-cold sober and you have a supernatural experience, you'll, you'll understand the difference between the two. Mm. And I think that's also quite valuable is to know that you're yeah. not hallucinating, right? When you have mm. this experience, you're not on drugs, you're not drunk, you're not stoned. You are having an experience that has got nothing to do with a substance you've ingested, but with something that's taking place in front of you. That's something that's another thing, another event that's taking place that you have to get on board somehow that you cannot now blame on drugs or alcohol. No, I usually say that... Uh if you induce a, a hallucination or a paranormal experience, it's like looking out the window. But when you develop an ability to attain a particular condition or a state of mind or a level of vibration, then it's owned. It's 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 going out the door. Yes, it's not just peeking out the window. Exactly, it's something you experience. Exactly. But in the ancient, uh, some ancient Greek uh, interpretations, they had like okay, they had what they called earth heads. That's the people who couldn't so easily manipulate their own nervous system and trigger um, something in, let's say, the third eye in the pineal. Right. gland that would make them look into other dimensions. So they allowed them to experiment. It's like they had drugs, what we now call drugs, but uh, methods uh, that could bypass, that could accelerate or help them gain those window sites because they were earth heads and they needed right. a little help. Sure. Be that it was inhalation of some natural gas coming out of the earth or if it was certain plants, even, even Mariana. Uh, it could be mushrooms, like you said, it could be fungus, it could be the mystical thing called soma, anything that they knew to. Mm -hmm. uh, so that it wasn't, even then they didn't say this is uh, the way, like many in the counterculture, young people, uh, ever ever since your generation actually, right. <laughs> and up till to now, many of them mistake this for the real experience and in a way the baby is thrown out with the bathwater sure. is what i mean oh absolutely i mean it, it's it's a kind of an initiation but it's not the end of the story it just gets you started that's about all that, that it is you're perfectly right i mean my generation was the timothy leary turn on tune in drop out generation right mm. and yeah that was a big mistake i mean People doing a hundred acid trips? Are you kidding me? I mean, there's there was no reason for that. One was enough, you know, mm. and in some cases more than enough. You just needed that one. You needed to have your mind open to these these possibilities. Then you went on from there. Yeah, like look what's possible now. Go out and gain it by yourself. I exactly. Mm. Yeah.
Okay, so I, w- I would say it belongs to the story that you have four other books. To those who are interested in this book, you should know that Peter has written by more than just Nazis. <laughs> you have, like you mentioned earlier, Tantric Temples, Eros and Magic in Java. Mm-hmm. That's from 2011. Uh, the next occult book would be The Angel and the Sorcerer from 2012. Uh, yeah, I guess that's about Mormonism. That's about the origin of the LDS church. And there's occult connections there too, right? Well, yeah. I, I was fascinated by the figure of, of Joseph Smith and the fact that he was using basically Francis Barrett's The Magus in order to summon that angel oh, that, that, wow. that talked to him. That I didn't know. Well, wow. and it's the same text that really started off the Golden Dawn and, and Alistair Crowley yeah, and Jack yeah, Parsons yeah. and everybody else. I mean, there's this Jeez. continuum, this, um, this idea that Francis Barrett had that. And Francis Barrett was really a rehash of Agrippa. And so we go back to that. But I was fascinated by the figure of Joseph Smith, the talismans that uh, were found on his body when he was killed, uh, his showstones like Dee and Kelly. He's staring at these showstones to get the Book of Mormon translated, quote unquote. All of this stuff that to me was fascinating about Joseph Smith. He was an occultist and a Freemason and all the rest of it. So Okay, so it's true what the conspiracy buffs say about uh, him then. I've always written him off as an idiot, as a con man. But uh, and he may have been, well, but he may have been mo- being, being a magician and a con man is not mutually exclusive. You know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. More like the Crowley and yeah. con man, the Archdevil fool, maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But um, well, I, I put him in the same category as the Hubbard guy, Scientologist. I sure. have more, more respect for a guy like Crowley than Hubbard, actually, because Crowley was honest. Oh yeah, <laughs> in his <laughs> sure, should we say uh, re- rebellion? The, then you have um, the Dark Lord that you mentioned, H.P. Yeah. Lovecraft, Kenny Grant, and the Typhonian tradition in magic from 2013. Pretty recent book that. Yeah. So you go into you go really into the dark places and. Then we have, uh, oh, this is the first of them, actually. From 2008, you have Stairway to Heaven, which maybe is the most relevant here. Chinese alchemists, Jewish Kabbalists, and the art of spiritual transformation. Yeah. Huh. Huh. I should have you on for that book. That's we, We're already in that area now. <laughs> yeah, actually, and that was that's based on my master's thesis, um, and it's in a much expanded form of my oh. thesis. Um, with a lot of the right. stuff that they told me to keep out, I put it back in and, and published it, published <laughs> yeah. it as Stairway to Heaven, and that's that focuses on specifically the role that um, the North Star, the Pole Star, played in religion and the uh, Ursa Major and, and the Big Dipper. I I translate a lot of Egyptian and other religious traditions with their seven stages leading to immortality in terms of that constellation Mm. uh, for for very serious reasons. I mean, they're actually referenced directly in many cases. It's just that we've missed it. We haven't paid attention to it. So I've gone back and I've looked at it and said, okay, this is what they were talking about. They were talking about really ascending the stars, you know, and really going to to the pole star because everything seemed to circle around it. It was immortal. It never went below the horizon. So Mm. that's what Stairway to Heaven is about. I'm very proud, actually, of Stairway to Heaven. Uh, It was, you know, done as an academic work, but it's not that inaccessible. No, I should I should read it. That's for sure. Uh, this is a reason that you have an a big occult following. Uh, I, I think you've been a little underestimated on your tribute to the esoteric literature. But we'll see if we can do something about that. I, I just also want to hurry to add that even in Shakespeare, you'll find uh, references to constellations in the sky. Sure, that's that's some of the codes that. Uh, 
also has been confirmed by the findings of Peter Amundsen that I mentioned in the beginning of the show. And listeners, <clears throat> this show, although it's a part of a philosophical series, could also be listened to in context of our series that I mentioned in the beginning from Solomon's Temple to Arcadia because it fits so neatly in into that story. And Thomas Vaughan, he was uh, a man in the middle, I'd say, mm-hmm. between the first generation uh, who created all this stuff, Bacon and the Shakespeare Project, and then today. So go listen to that and also go get Peter's book, which again is called... The Tantric Alchemist. Yeah. And the subtitle is Thomas Vaughan. Yes, Thomas Vaughan and the Indian Tantric Tradition. Right. Okay, Peter, it's been uh, quite... Uh, time flies. Uh, I thought we would be going for one and a half. It seems we've gone for two and a half. Yeah. <laughs> so I see what you mean the last time when you said that we need a little time for this show. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we still have only scratched the surface, I'm sure. I'll, I'll find out. I'll, I'll be one of those who will uh, go in line to buy your book. So thank, thank you, you very, very much, much. For, for coming on again. Thank you. Thank you, thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for tuning in to Forum Borealis. Hope the topic today wasn't too niche for your interest. But if you fancy what we've been exploring today, let me remind you that we actually also discuss this exact matter in another program we had with Peter in the beginning of part two of the show called Hitler's Ratlined that you will find online. And as I recall, we, we touched upon a few things that are not covered here today. So check it out if you so like. Now, you've noticed we've allowed brief YouTube commercials uh, in our videos on the tube to help cover our costs, but it's a drop in the ocean compared to the means we get from our generous sponsors. That's our main backing that allows this to be brought to you. And let me remind those of you who have contributed to financing us that if you sign up at our website, you get access to many more shows not yet released, as as well as extra stuff, among else forum talks where we address questions and comments from our very insightful listenership. Before closing for the night, I want to share a quote from Peter's book on the nature of information that we briefly mentioned today. It is inevitable that a loss of faith in media would contribute to a loss of faith in the content itself, where writing began as divine communication and literacy was the privilege of a very few. Writing and the media to promote and publish that writing is now accessible to everyone, even to the functionally illiterate. This means that the quality of available information has been degraded considerably, along with the structural weakness of primary and secondary school education. It is now difficult to determine between what is investigative journalism, for instance, 
And what is baseless conspiracy theorizing? As no demands are made on the writers of media content, the demands have correspondingly increased on the readers of that content to practice a form of what fundamentalist Christians call discernment, to greater and lesser degrees of success. And naturally, we have to close with quoting Thomas Vaughan himself. I present thee here with a positive express of principles as I find them in nature. It is not the vomit of Aristotle, which his followers with so much diligence lick up and swallow. I intend not the conquest, but the exercise of thy reason. Not that thou shouldst swear allegiance to my dictates, but compare my conclusions with nature and examine their correspondence. Be pleased to consider that obstinacy enslaves the soul and clips the wings which God gave her for flight and discovery. It is an age wherein truth is near a miscarriage, and it is enough for me that I have appeared thus far for it in a day of necessity. Have thy heart in heaven and thy hands upon the earth. Ascend in piety and descend in charity, for this is the nature of light and the way of the children. With these winged words I bid you adieu. As always, your host has been Al. And until our paths cross again, I remain yours sincerely. Be seeing you. number one.